You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, episode 349. My name is Chris Spangle, and I am here with a bevy of guests. We're going to talk about domestic violence. Yes, we're kind of taking a diversion from our, our normal programming and I'll explain why we're talking about it in just a moment. Our good friend Miranda Barnett is here, uh, and she's back. Miranda's back right after this. Warning, this show is for adults, produced by semi-adults. So the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. All right, welcome to We Are Libertarians. My name is Chris Spangle, and uh, this is episode 349, recorded on March 26, 2019. And uh, we're just going to jump right into it tonight. Uh, Harry's not here. Harry, normally, this is a series that we have called The Cost, where we, we talk about more serious issues, and Harry just can't take it. He, he told me last week, he goes, nope, I love Miranda. Tell her I said hello. But uh, So that's where Harry is this week. Uh, now, I watched Surviving R. Kelly, uh, like probably a lot of people did. It was on Lifetime, I think, and I watched it on Hulu. I don't know what cable is anymore. <laughs> um, and it, I think having been concerned with domestic violence as an issue of both the heart and law for a very long time, obviously, if you listen to episode 141 of the show with Amanda and Amanda's story, uh, that's really when I discovered the massive issue that nobody really talks about. And so I've always wanted to talk about it. And so when I watched Surviving R. Kelly, I thought, wow, anybody with a daughter or even a son should sit down and watch this when they become a teenager. And I wanted to do a show. So I had um, now listen, I'm going to be honest with you both. I am terrible with names. Everybody that listens to this knows. So if I say your name wrong, please correct me. Um, But first and foremost, Miranda Barnett's back. How are you, Miranda? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's so nice to see you. You look, you look lovely. You look great and healthy. And Finally back to being healthy yeah. and uh, living a normal life again. It's yes. very good. So uh, Miranda's World was the podcast that we did together for a long time, and we've been close friends for uh, a couple years, and so I'm glad to see that you're healthy. We're going to kind of talk about your story tonight and uh, kind of annotated, I guess. Um, okay. And we're joined by Lael. Yep, that's right. It's Lael. like Gail with an L. Lael Hill. <laughs> yep. uh, and, uh, and then also Shaughnessy uh, Terrell. Terrell, but you know. Terrell. I, that's uh-huh. the one I messed up. I know. You got Shaughnessy. <laughs> All right. He so, had to mess it up somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so why don't you... Why don't you go first, Lael? You and I met on Facebook somehow, and, uh, you know... Because I'm a libertarian. Are you really? Okay. Okay. Sometimes. That's okay. I'm kidding. We're not all perfect That's libertarianism (laughs) at its finest. And so, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and then what you do now. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, well, I'm I'm super excited to be here, and thank you so much. I think you care so much about victims, uh, violent crime, and so I'm I'm just totally honored to to be part of this uh, podcast. Um, I have a background in social work. Um, uh, mostly specializing in what's called ma- macro social work practice, which basically means that instead of providing therapy for um, clients, I kind of want to change the systems and change uh, our communities to where our clients don't need therapy in the first place. And so I um, do some lobbying and I, I work with legislators to um, really improve the environment that my clients or communities as a whole um have so so mm-hmm. that they don't have to seek out social services. So that's sort of what a macro social worker does. Um, but mostly, but I do do direct services uh, at the micro level as well. Explain that. Uh, so micro level social work service is that direct service one-on-one um, with a client um, and sort of helping them get their needs met, um, advocating for them, con- connecting them to services or whatnot. Um and then there's the meso level, which is working with community organizations, um, like I would work with HFAF or the Julian Center or Mental Health America. The Julian Center is like the local women's shelter. Or be be careful about the alphabet soup because when mm-hmm. you when you do this every day, you you know a lot more than maybe we know, and so sure. But uh, you don't have to go into too much detail about some mm-hmm. of the like the names and stuff. But okay, if you'll pull that mic too, so you'll talk directly into yeah. the. There you go. Perfect. Is this better? That's perfect. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So, so how did you get into this line of work? Uh, so I, w- I was working on um, with victims of uh, traffic crimes. I was working um, for any anyone that was impacted by impaired driving um, and underage drinking. And um, I was, uh, before I started working in traffic crimes, I did mental health and um, child welfare. But traffic crimes uh, really brought me into the criminal justice system and into criminal court. And I had firsthand seen the, the impact on families and communities communities really as a whole that crimes had on people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really, I really developed my calling there with working with crime victims. And then I started to look at um, how I can also serve victims of homicide and um, domestic violence and sexual violence and, and not just serve them, but really honor them uh, as a population as a whole, because what I was seeing is that um, in, in the criminal justice system, and as, as Shaughnessy can mention, is that um, it's a two-party system, meaning that you have the state, um, which is represented by the prosecutor, um, who represents the state, and then you have the accused, which is represented by a defendant, and victims are um, not considered a party, and they are sometimes considered a witness, but they don't have really a right or a say that, that you know, when it comes to... Um, sort of balancing those scales of justice with the the rights and, of and the o- constitutional rights of the defendant. So it gets really hard. Right. And oftentimes a victim coming out of this doesn't have the financial resources because they're coming out of a situation where the spouse or the 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 partner and let me let me just clarify this is not going to be an F men session because men are victims of domestic violence Absolutely. too. We're going to mm-hmm. talk about um, men who are victims of both sexual and domestic violence along the way. And I will say that if you are um, uh, like, I hope that everybody will listen to this and I know that it's going to be heavy because there are people that are in your life that you may not understand that are victims 
or going through something or maybe on the path towards something. And this is an episode that can help you see the warning signs. And that's what we're going to really focus on are a lot of those milestones. So you, uh, uh, as a parent, a person out in the dating world, um, on either side, uh, either male or female, what are some, some of the warning signs of slipping into this kind of relationship? And then how do you get out of it? And then how do you heal from it? And we're, we're not going to discriminate. Not all domestic violence is men against women. Now, obviously, it's a large portion of it, but uh, we'll talk or a little a bit. a large part of what's reported. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because men, men have, don't want to look weak. But, I mean, you were telling me off air, you know, as your, your work, you're kind of a person who is guiding them along that path. And mm-hmm. you did a protective order for a man, for mm-hmm. instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, mm-hmm. so a lot of your work is kind of shepherding people through that process who may be getting out of situations where they don't have access to resources. Is yeah. that a fair way to uh, sum it up? Absolutely. It's a lot of crisis intervention work, too. Um, basically, how can I help you in this moment um, to get you safe? Yeah. Right. So how can we save your life at this moment, get you a protective order, get you into a shelter if needed, um, and then we'll work on, you know, sort of all the other needs that they may have regarding to housing or paying off the medical bills that are a result of the crime, things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then Shaughnessy, what is, what is your background? How did you get into this work and what do you do now? Um, so I'm currently the domestic violence sexual assault resource prosecutor for the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council, or IPAC. Um, prior to coming to IPAC, I was a deputy prosecutor for several years where I um, focused on sex crimes with both adult and child victims, uh, child abuse with uh, serious bodily injury or death, um, domestic violence, and then for the last two years, I was the human trafficking prosecutor. So I took all of the human trafficking cases okay. uh, in this county. And so what I do at IPAC is I travel across the state and I train uh, law enforcement officers, prosecutors, probation officers. I don't know. I, that's how I met Layla, actually, was I was presenting somewhere and she was in the audience. So okay. all kinds of different audiences, um, whomever wants uh, any kind of um, training in those areas to train sexual assault nurses a lot. Um, so we do that. We work with the legislature to try to enact um bills or laws that um will benefit uh victims of crimes and um take a lot of support calls from prosecutors around the state when they're in trial things like that to try to help them uh do better and provide a lot of trainings trial advocacy courses things like that okay so you work so you work more with victims and you work more kind of with the infrastructure is that maybe i think it's fair to say okay okay Um, i'm not as much in the trenches as i used to be okay uh, is it is it just really hard work and you just can't? It is not. I don't think I can put into words how difficult it is. Um, mm-hmm. There's you know something it's called vicarious trauma that is a real thing. It's mm-hmm. not you know you're not the victim and don't think that I'm saying that. But mm-hmm. when you're working in that day in and day out and you're seeing um, victims of these horrible crimes, you know you're seeing them after they've gone through the worst thing they've gone through in their lives, and right. you're trying to do right by them. Right. Mm-hmm. It takes a toll. Yeah, I cried the other day to my husband. And I mean, I'm a tough broad. I mean, when you're in the criminal justice system, I'm not going to lie. I mean, you know, but it's, I mean, it, it starts to have an impact, um, definitely. And it's something that I want to address uh, with ICCVR. We need more programs um, addressing vicarious trauma with with our colleagues in, in the criminal justice system, with prosecutors, law enforcement, victim advocates. Um, I think if you go into this line of work, you're probably an empathetic person to begin with. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, and so if For you're sure. an empathetic person, I, I know I wouldn't. I'd, you soak that 
all in. I, yeah, no. I cry watching Netflix movies, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Miranda, you, uh, you've been a part of the program for a very long time. It's 2016. It's 2019 now, by my math. If it's I add the three and carry the four, that's like five years. <laughs> and so we've become close friends over a long time and and it's kind of dipped over time and there's always well, just the, the correspondence j- right yeah the hearts are still there exactly um but and you sort of go man i haven't heard from miranda in a while and you sort of like go i hope she's okay let me check in and then you know every once in a while you check in and like most of the time it's like really good and then there's other times where it's like i need help mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and so We've talked a little bit about your podcast, on your podcast, Miranda's World, um, but let me give the summation of Miranda, because I want you all to know who Miranda is. Miranda is one of the most independent-minded, strong-willed women. When I think of feminists, I think of Miranda. Um, had a child at what age? 16. 16. Did it on her own, raised this child. She's about to graduate great girl you've done a great job raising her um so you have uh you have a lot of strength and you work with you you work with uh, i don't know if you want to say what you do or or if you want to no okay and you just like you're very intuitive about people and especially men and their intentions well with my past jobs i've had to be um and also just being on my own since i was 17 with a child um and coming from a not so great upbringing um, with little support. My mother is a drug alcoholic, you name it. Um, Just very, not a responsible person, not a great person. Um, Yeah. So it's, it was just, it was, it's crazy to think that I would end up in some of the situations I have in the past couple of years because, you know, the way I have survived this long and raised my daughter and did the things I've done is by being pretty savvy about people and reading into what's going on. And Right. Yeah. So I say that to just illustrate the fact that Miranda is not just like... A victim. What are the... Like when... I think when people think of victims, like they're maybe stereotypes and they're Helpless. probably usually, usually wrong. Like what are some of those stereotypes that when people think of a victim of sexual or domestic violence that the public may think one way, but the truth is another. Yeah. Weak, mm-hmm. meek, codependent, mm-hmm. naive. Yes. Um, and, well, I, and I, not say I'm not... Dressing a those, certain way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And not say I don't fall into those categories. Like, I, I could have maybe been that way at one point in time or another, but um, in general, that I'm, I would say I'm the opposite of all of those things. Right. Um, and yet... You're found kind of, myself in that. You're a little terrifying, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I lost my uh, bark for a while, so now I'm back. So, well, go ahead. Oh, and it was just, there's something that we kind of say um, in, in the world of victim advocacy in the criminal justice system, and, and maybe Shaughnessy, you've heard of this, it's called the perfect victim. Um, Does not exist. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so the perfect victim is normally portrayed by Hollywood and media and, and in the movies where it's it's just, it's typically a woman. Um, walking down an alleyway and they get um, violently raped um, at gunpoint and they fight the uh, offender off and they act you know all badass and tough and and that's just not not reality at all and unfortunately our statutes are written kind of I think and maybe you can um, our our definitions of rape are, are written sort of to support that perfect victim when in reality victims are everyday women and men and children Mm -hmm. and um 
They they are usually victimized by somebody they might know and an acquaintance, and uh, they they really freeze when they're assaulted um, because they're surviving and, and they're surviving that moment. So um, I just wanted to touch on that about what victimization look, might look like. I, I want to take a moment just to touch on partner rape because I think that is I think when we think about rape or or sexual violence, for instance. You think about that scenario in the movies, mm-hmm. but the reality is that it is usually a, a person that's very close to you, not a stranger, not a stranger yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's not obvious and apparent what's happening, right? All of a sudden, you know. And there's a feeling I think if you're a victim, I would imagine that well, I was in that situation, and it's just you know, I I made that mistake of being in that situation. That's Guilt. exactly right. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, and these, these preconceived notions are what your jurors walk into the courtroom with. And I mm-hmm. think we'll probably talk about mm-hmm. that a little bit more later, but, um, they do, they think a ver- victim has to look a certain way and it does vary a little bit based on domestic versus sexual violence. Right. And if it's a, um, what we would call a stranger rape versus, um, an assault by a known assailant and the vast majority of sexual assaults are by someone you know not necessarily your intimate partner a lot of them are intimate partners but mostly by somebody you know and have uh, welcomed or invited into your life in some manner and yeah. that is a big part of why it becomes so difficult because people it's hard to wrap your mind around it right so i want to jump into miranda's story because let's start there and let's go back to let's say person one and person two okay. would that be fair Sure. And anything you don't want to talk about, you're, you'll tell me to shut up. But mm-hmm. well, um, I don't. Actually, I, I see her over go, here, and what? she just looks so badass. You're oh, such a strong yeah. woman. I can tell no, she's like ready to go. You. You're just a survivor. Yeah. Um, but just well, before we get into the domestic violence aspect, since yeah. we were talking about the rape or molestation issue, um, and then also part of my upbringing, we'll give you a, just a peek into what a shit show <laughs> my mother was. Um, and, and it's not about just downing her because I'm sure we all have parents or people in our lives that, you know, have exploited us or done things. And, you know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. But um, when I was, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13, um, my mother started giving me weed and Valium um, when I was 11. Um, and it's because... Obviously, didn't know it then. Um, I didn't ask for. I didn't know. Um, I was just scared. But she had moved back in with my grandparents where I lived, and she wanted to do crack and do whatever she wanted, and and basically get me a out of her hair, but then be kind of, and in a way like a, a underhanded blackmail situation of like I know I'm doing something wrong. So if I caught her, if I knew something, I wouldn't necessarily just go out and say it to my grandparents. Um, so there was a guy that lived in our neighborhood. Um, I, again, who knows how old he was? Obviously, at least in his twenties. Um, but he had—he's you know, a drug dealer. Obviously, I did. You know, he had like a big Tahoe with like TVs in it, and blah blah blah. And uh, so one day I was riding around with him smoking weed, and um, he forced me to perform oral sex on him. And. I was really high. I was a kid. And I mean, I was just really high. And I was just like, I, I, I did say no. And I didn't want to do it. Um, and he did make me. But yet, he didn't put a gun to my head. Um, you know, there's just all these things. So when I got home, I just was very kind of confused and in a weird state. And my cousin, you know, asked me what was going on. I ended up telling her. She's like, you know, no, this isn't right. So she tells my grandmother. My grandmother calls the police. Make a report. Um my mother 
at some point later tell, comes to me before like any kind of court date or anything um, and tells me that you know she talked to her lawyer friend and it was going to cost a lot of money and that I was going to get in trouble because I was smoking marijuana with this man. So I was going to get in trouble for that. Um, and just all these other things. And, like, and, and told me to retract my statement because um, it was in my best interest. And so that's what I did. Because um, I had no, you know, I just had no clue. And, you know, looking back, it's just like, wow. And, and that's because she was either buying or selling drugs to this guy. So who knows if he threatened her or if it was just in her own self-interest to do it. Um, but, you know, just again, where it's like you victims feeling that shame or, you know, just not even knowing, like, it was just a very weird situation for me. First of all, I, I was doing something I shouldn't be doing. So there's that. And then there's also the fact of, you know, I was a wild teenager. So, you know. I don't know, just all these things that they pitted against, or she pretty much pitted against me in my own mind. Right. Um, so so when, when you two hear that story, what, what, I saw you shaking your head, Shaughnessy. Like, what was coming to your mind? What, well, actually, that behavior, that, that is abuse, what your mom did to you. And that is, those, that method is something that we see abusers doing to their victims a lot of time, especially in domestic violence cases. Um, in domestic violence, it's about power and control and keeping that power and control and the different ways by which you do that. Mm-hmm. And one of them is, um, we see it a lot where they've done drugs together or something like that, and then they'll threaten their victim with, um, well, you know, we smoked crack together, and if you go forward with this, then I'm going to tell them that, and they're going to take your kids away. Yeah. So it's the same concept for you. I mean, except worse as a child because it's your mother mm-hmm. and um she's th- you know threatening you yeah and um so as, as somebody who's been in that who as a person who you worked as a prosecutor correct yes and so would she have gotten in trouble for smoking weed and that in, like had had she she pushed the pushed Abs- the issue absolutely not she wouldn't have but that's what people think all the time right. and mm-hmm. in cases where we have we have lots of sexual assaults of commercial sex workers and so i had one case probably the case i'm the most proud of ever that mm-hmm. i got a conviction on was the rape of a prostitute who was a heroin addict and um she was out prostituting to get money for drugs and she was honest about it and she owned it from the second that she walked in the door and because of that we won if she had come in and not been complete because everybody knew what she was doing like the mm-hmm. facts of that case were very clear it was out in an abandoned house and it was it was clear to right. anybody who knows anything what was going on and if she lied about it we would have been in trouble but she didn't i mean consent versus non-consent i mean even if you're doing illegal activities a lack of consent is still, is a problem. Yeah. It's still mm-hmm. it's still rape, mm-hmm. right? But I don't sometimes, care who even mm-hmm. in your like the other person doesn't even have to say it to you or threaten you with it. It's like right. sometimes in your own mind you know mm-hmm. what you've done wrong or you know, and that's actually like a lot of reasons why um, my adult life I have been pretty transparent with just about everything because. I never want to feel that burden for any reason, not necessarily a heavy issue like that. Um, I don't want to feel that burden of what if the other shoe drops or somebody might have something on me. Um, And that actually kind of will fit in 
you know, we'll kind of get into some of that when we get into person number one um, right. and some of the things that happened. Um, I think it goes along with healing. I think, you know, my experience has been nothing like that. But just when you th- when you are 99% open, but you leave that 1% back, mm-hmm. and there's always this, if people find out that 1% about me, that ugly piece of me, because nobody else in the world knows this. Like when you go to therapy and you talk about that 1%, all of a sudden nobody has power over you. Exactly. And you can't give other people that power. Right. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean you have to tell everybody all of your business. But And I try to tell my daughter the same, try to instill in her the same thought is that, you know, you need to, it's integrity. You need to be okay with your choices. It doesn't right. mean they're always right or good. But you need to know at the end of the day, you can stand up and say, yes, this happened, right or wrong, or whether you like it or not doesn't mean that's who I am now, but mm-hmm. that did happen and it is what it is. Yeah. And that, yeah. you know, it doesn't have any. Yeah. And, Go ahead, Lil. and I'm so sorry that no. you went through this. Oh, I, you. you know, and, and I do, I'm just going to add, um, that there is a hotline, um, for victims and survivors of both some, uh, sexual assault and domestic violence. And we can mention it through the, vo- the podcast, just in case anyone may be triggered. Um, the hotline for, uh, any, uh, survivors of sexual violence is one 800 656-4673 and you can call that number 24-7 if you need to talk to somebody um, and and I'm just hearing your story just it's heartbreaking because from the social science of things is that um, you were victimized by the crime by, by, by the man but you're also victimized by the uh, child abuse aspect of your mother and internally you're thinking as a young kid that this is my mother and she's supposed to protect me and she's supposed to believe me um, and that's why we always say now we should always you know believe victims and survivors um and so there must have been um maybe you felt like some sort of abandonment um from the person that was supposed to protect you and so that could, did, could be trauma um, but it wasn't really even until later because as mm-hmm. a kid you don't realize i just no. thought what she said was what it was and yeah. moved on with my life yeah how, how old did you you said because you said 11 and i then, was i was 11 when she uh-huh. first started giving me drugs oh, I see. um okay. but i was probably <clears throat> 13 14 mm-hmm. when it happened mm-hmm. um but you know I honestly put myself in a lot of really bad positions. So the fact that that was the only time that's ever happened to me is Mm -hmm. actually, I feel like, um, a miracle in itself. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't have any supervision. My grandparents, um, were really the only people that were disciplinarians. My grandpa died when I was 14. Um, my grandmother, you know, died right after two months after I had my daughter at 16. Um, they were sick. They were, you know what I mean? And, they did the very best they could. They raised me to be a great person. Like the, everything that is good about me is from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also enabled her. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, I was definitely victimized by her for mm-hmm. quite some time. I don't speak to her anymore because I learned my lesson. Mm-hmm. I just can't do it. I can't, I refuse to be victimized and, and I can't have any level of relationship with her as that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but it's just kind of crazy to know that yeah it's like you don't it doesn't hit you until later in life but it's like oh wow like you that's what you did like and especially having a child of my own it's like i could never imagine a situation no matter what is in my best interest or not where i would ever allow for that to go on um, I want to I want to talk about the role of parents. You know, for any parents that are listening who are involved in the community and may see, or, or family members who are involved who weren't strong enough in that moment to rise to the occasion. I think there's there's you know the surviving R. Kelly. You think about the parents who like 
got their child involved with R. Kelly, but we're strong enough to protect them. And so there's almost that 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 one set of parents who thinks that they 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 can protect the child, and then there's the obviously Miranda's mom who is involved in trafficking or child selling or maybe intentional or unintentional or and i think people think that that particular story only takes place in very poor areas but when you talk about parents who are on drugs and basically prostituting their kids that is happening in this affluent area of indianapolis where we're at and that is human trafficking yes um people i think uh, often hear the term human trafficking and it's a bit of a misnomer. Right. They think of the movie Taken or... Um, African slaves. You yes. Know, in the and children it's like, so, yeah. I think that the right. the statistic, and this may be an outdated one, but um, if it is, it's not too far outdated. I think 83% of sex trafficking victims in the United States are United States citizens. Mm. And the vast majority of those are our at-risk youth. It is teenagers. Um, both boys and girls, but as we'll talk about more later, mm-hmm. um boys under report even more than girls do but um that's you will see the same common themes amongst these abusers whether it be sexual violence human trafficker domestic violence they figure out what um the vulnerability is and they exploit it and oftentimes it's financial stability and or love and they figure out what that person needs and they fill that void and Mm -hmm. then just like we talked about earlier before we were on air it's not um you don't it's not day one where they're like okay a, a trafficker doesn't approach a victim and say, you're going to give 12 blowjobs today and I'm going to take the money. And well, I'm going to punch you in the face. They don't right. tell you that. No, it doesn't work like no, that. No, they buy you clothes. Yeah. They make you feel good. It's, it's all called grooming behavior. Yeah. When, mm-hmm. And I actually have seen a lot of that um, when I was a dancer previously. Oh, I was gosh. a dancer for a long period of time. And so, you know, it's still, and for that situation, the girls that were involved in that, I mean, it's really a sad situation because if somebody else wasn't exploiting them, they were going to exploit themselves because those people, they had a drug problem. Um, and again, a lot of times, though, um, it starts with somebody that is their, somebody they trust, a boyfriend, a friend that gives them drugs to begin with. And, and it's all about that grooming because they know that this person is going to then be addicted and then they'll do this and this. And then eventually they're going to have that person filling a need for them, whether it's making them money yep. or, you know, buying drugs from them or, you know, just however they plan on exploiting that person. Let's talk about the concept of grooming. You hear about that maybe in terms of like you hear in it, p- people who listen to the show may hear of like the grooming gangs and Islamic uh, territory in, in London. But grooming happens all the time in both uh, with children, with men or women in dating situations. Like let, let's talk a little bit about that concept. Um, what is grooming? What does it look like? How does it start? Because as we kind of talked about, as I've talked with a lot of my friends about this sort of stuff, it's like – it's like quicksand, but it's really slow sinking. And then six months, nine months, a year in, it clicks. And then you realize you're trapped. So it really sounds like it starts grooming someone on the abuser and the abused. Sounds like it starts with a very, I don't want to say charismatic, but like to manipulative take. And manipulative and charismatic. Yeah, to, uh, an exploitive person. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, I, I, we talked a little bit about abducted in plain sight where this person had a game plan, a very charismatic <laughs> person who groomed the entire family to get to a certain point. And obviously that's an extreme case, but it, mu- it sounds like it starts with a person who has, I, has the ability to identify the need of a victim. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So what grooming is, is it is it's getting them there. It's this process by which they use whatever means necessary to earn trust. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are like, oh, they just groom the victim, but they don't just groom the victim. Typically speaking, they're grooming everyone around them, too, especially in a um, child sexual abuse type of scenario, mm-hmm. because that's what it, they have. What I they, I call it, they have mastered the art of manipulation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they figure it out and they become so trusted within that family, that community by that child that once it does come out if it does come out everyone's like what that no him no have you met him he's the nicest guy i mean how many news stories have you watched and um people have come out of the woodwork neighbors community members co-workers whomever and i'm like absolutely not he would never do it if you think about dr larry nasser Mm -hmm. how Mm -hmm. many years did he get away with what he did i think 20 at least It's it's, it's multiple decades yeah so, so when we talk about some of those signs for people who are in that community or parents, what are some of the warning signs of that particular person and then maybe that something might be happening? I mean, what are some of those first signs of trouble? Um, well, I mean, from my, my perspective, um, just based on my experiences um, and, and some of the training, and I definitely want to um, – Thank Tracy McDaniel, Tracy McDaniel from Restored, who is the um, city of Indianapolis um, sort of human trafficking social work expert, um, and she works directly with the victims. And so I've had the opportunity to hear her speak, and she's great if you ever uh, want to learn more and reach out to her. Um, for, but from my experience, especially working in child welfare, and again, this is just my experience in, in child welfare, um, a lot of, unfortunately, because a lot of these um, victims don't really have the parents that would kind of um, ask those questions and set boundaries and rules and curfews and things like that just based on what I've seen. And so it's kind of that, I, I always talk about this sort of like, cause it's that social norm for people to say, well, it's the parents and where are the parents? But, you know, when the parents are on drugs themselves or oftentimes trafficking their own children or are not around, um, those kids don't have anybody, you know. So, But there, but there are a lot of, I mean, it leaks out of children. You have outcry witnesses because every child has a caretaker of some variety. Even mm-hmm. if you don't have strong parents, you've got uh, you've got it's a, a community, a, a so, teacher, yeah. or you, neighbors, you, boys yeah. and girls club, YMCA, yeah, some, so, somebody. So if you're um, if you're in those situations and you work with kids, like what are maybe some of those signs that you see in children that start to surface? So they all of a sudden will have their nails done. Um, they will have new clothes out of nowhere. Their hair is done. This is human trafficking. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's the same with even adults because, like I said, the dancers that I'm talking mm-hmm. about, yeah, they're coming in with mm-hmm. Louis Vuitton bags and they don't mm-hmm. even have their own place to live. Yeah. Uh-huh. They don't even have a car or a yeah. license. Um, so, so a groomer who who is basically prostituting somebody mm-hmm. and that's the difference versus somebody who's molesting somebody I mean I want to make sure that we're kind it of it can all be the same so in, well and trafficking I mean and our laws have changed and maybe you can touch on this um, a little bit over the years is that well first you know depending on their age and, and consent and everything but now I believe that all all um, you know they used to be considered prostitutes but now you know those what is under the age of eighteen are always now considered trafficking victims. Okay, um, which are, is I mean, which is great news. I right. mean that that yeah. is a huge improvement in our systems. Which so. has not been old a, enough to give consent. 
Which right. has been a yeah. term shift because uh-huh. you start to hear trafficking more and you think like mm-hmm. your child's being kidnapped and taken to the mm-hmm. Middle East or to the Europe right. or something. But it's happening but it's, right here on our streets in Indianapolis okay. and around Indiana. I mean, all over it's our country. It's very prevalent in mm-hmm. Indianapolis. Really? Yeah. And and also, I mean, and, and what Tracy was talking about um, is that they, I mean, this is mind blowing that they're, I mean, some of these um, criminals these abusers and rapists and um what do you call them pimps i guess are putting tracking devices in their victims like the same tracking device you would go to put your uh, when you go to the vet and take your dog and you're like yeah i want to what do they call it like a a track like a monitor like so a chip, a chip. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a chip they're putting they're putting these things in in their victims right and so if they go to get help and they go to the hospital or they go to a neighbor's house, like what you're saying, they're too scared <laughs> to right. even say anything. And so a lot of the signs is that they're going to be um, a lot of these kids are. are and, and that's why I commend Tracy so much for for this direct service that she's doing, because these kids can be really combative and they're scared or they don't know they're being victim because, you know, in their world, they've never had their nails done and they've never had, you know, somebody say that that's their boyfriend. And they love them and this and that, you know, and they may may have already had childhood trauma and everything and so they're being manipulated by the grooming practice but at the same time sort of scared for their life and so there's a lot of behavioral signs to look for too i mean they're not gonna they're gonna combat be combative they're not gonna want help sometimes you know um I think it's a challenging population to work with, especially you know those kids and I, and just to add i I particularly I don't work with kids or a population, people under the age of 18. Okay. Um, just because it's such a special, in social work practice, it's such a specialized population because it is so challenging. And hats off to all the social workers like Tracy yeah. that does that work. And, and you've worked with that population, right? Sean? Yeah, I'm, that what's what I did for the last two years. So I'm actually the only the second person in Indiana who's done those cases solely for any length of time. Um, so I want to touch on that real quick. Not every parent of kids who's a victim are bad parents. Um, it's easier to exploit a kid who's got some trouble going on at home, right? Whether it be inattentive parents or um, in the human trafficking vein. We had one um, mom who she was trying her hardest. She was doing as best she could. She had three kids and she was working three jobs. And she sat down under her kitchen table and she said, you know what? I work three jobs and I can't pay the electricity. He takes her out and he gets her nails done and he gets her hair done. How am I supposed to compete with that? I mean, you see that in Surviving R. Kelly where the mom is the mom is gung-ho to save her daughter, but how does she compete with R. Kelly and the wealth that he has and all? I mean, Exactly. Yeah. In, in, in terms of human trafficking, often those victims have been sexually abused at some point in time. So for them, and I'm not saying that again, you can, there's never any blanket anything with any of these uh, cases. You can never say every victim has been a certain or has not mm-hmm. been a certain way, but often they have been sexually abused. And for a girl who's 16 years old and her mom's boyfriend um, was raping her since she was nine, for her, just like Lael said, they don't identify as being a victim right. because they think, well, at least I'm getting something out of it now. Mm-hmm. And so for us, what we would try to do, because just like Lael said, people expect a perfect victim to walk into the courtroom. And especially a kid like that, who we have failed oftentimes for years because they didn't get the services that they should have gotten when they were getting abused at home, they do not present the way a juror wants them to present. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They are not, mm-hmm. um, they, they, they can be combative. They're rough around the edges, mm-hmm. so to speak. And They're so, not polished. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes really, really difficult to try those cases. And um, 
these cases, domestic sexual human trafficking, are, in my opinion, the most difficult cases to try. Mm -hmm. Um, They're it's really, really hard. And the grooming process in a um, sexual abuse case and a domestic violence case looks a little bit different than it does in a human trafficking case. Parents do traffic their kids, especially when there's drugs involved and there or maybe um, and this happens in rural Indiana in probably rural places everywhere, I guess, all the time. You've got maybe somebody who's got a drug debt for meth or heroin or whatever. And they're like, well, we'll just send our 14 year old over there, make her do whatever. And then our debt is repaid. That yeah. is sex trafficking mm-hmm. in Indiana yeah, and, and by definition. It's so sad. And, and just to add on that, I mean, I, I was looking at um, a, a recent article from 2018 that our country in the United States is rated number 10 for the most um, violent countries against women next to, um, you know, India and Saudi Arabia. And I mean, and and it's just, I mean, we're number 10 and it's because of all this we're talking about. And it's not just that. I mean, and we'll kind of talk it as we go through Miranda's story here, but like when you hear 25%, a quarter of women have been a victim of molestation or rape or some sort of sexual violence, I don't buy 25%. Like well, it, it's much more. It, it's much more. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, there, there isn't a woman that I've ever come in contact with that doesn't have at least some very unsettling experience, if not all of them have lost their freedom at some intense moment uh, in some way or mm-hmm. have felt out of control because of – a boyfriend, uh, a husband, uh, you know, like I, I will straight up punch a man if I hear wifely duties. Like if you ever listen to the show and use that <laughs> phrase, you need to think about your behavior. Um, we love you so much. <laughs> I just, it just, uh, I didn't realize that was well, a thing. And men though, as we were saying earlier, men fall victim to all of those Absolutely. same things. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and that I'm yeah. sure for the me too movement, I'm sure. And again, whether they perceive it a certain way or will say that they perceived it a certain way, every man has could say the same thing. I mean, my husband has manly yeah. duties, but I mean, that's just because I don't know how to fix a car. <laughs> right? Yeah, everybody has their strong suits, well, but it's I, I think, demeaning someone. I think me for too. And, and delving into this issue and having friends who have gone through it and talking to them about their experiences have been has been so great for me. Because I just rewatched Married with Children, and I realized like how much of my view of masculinity and women and how, how much of it comes from that show, and and That's funny. and so you know, sitting down with friends who who have or previous girlfriends who have said like, do you realize that this was a controlling behavior? This was this passive aggressive. Like, stop talking about the friends and like stuff like that. I think you know it, it, it has helped me in, in that aspect. Um, but let's go back to. Uh, the people who want to help or the people who know there's a situation going on because they can, you know, they're a teacher, they're a daycare worker, they're a, they're a, a coach, a youth pastor, somebody. They can see something is going on. But there's always that line where should I get involved? What should I do? How do I, how do I see something? If I, how do I say something if I see something? Like can you walk us through if you're that person – when should you get involved or when should you say something or who should you say it to? Well, with trafficking specifically, when you, they, they, certain people have statutory obligations, um, mm-hmm. a teacher, if they suspect any kind of child abuse and human trafficking is considered to be child abuse in the state of Indiana, they are required to report. Right. right. And actually we're all mandatory reporters mm-hmm. in Indiana at this point in time. So if mm. we see something that we think is child abuse. Now, if you see something that just seems a little bit weird, then you can't be like, well, I don't know. I, you know, right. maybe I don't know that it's child abuse, but, um, 
what I usually tell people is if it doesn't um, pass the smell test or, you know, you get that gut feeling, intuition is real. And if you get a feeling, I'm like, if you see something, just say something. Mm -hmm. Because what's the worst case scenario? Miranda said it best before. And my therapist always told me, because like... My head and my heart always lie to me, but my gut is never wrong. Like that intuition, that human animal piece of us who says something's not right here. I need to do something about this. Yeah. And And every situation usually is right. Yeah. And, you know, definitely. And I I wish I I have all these hotlines. I wish I had the DCS hotline number. (laughs) Um, You definitely can Google uh, DCS uh, mandatory reporting um, for more information on that online. Um, I I believe, like Shaughnessy said, in Indiana, we're all mandatory reporters. I certainly am as a social worker. um, And I could even be prosecuted if I knew that... um, uh, abuse was happening and I didn't report it. And and what I tell people is that like, you're not the investigator, right? I mean, you, you don't have you can report anonymously. You just call that one eight hundred number. You tell them what they what you know, and and they're and and you did your duty, and yeah. they're going to be the ones to investigate it and find it um, uh, unsubstantiated or substantiated. But you did your role, right? And and it's required by law to report it. Now, oftentimes I will say that the everyday citizen like yourself. Um, isn't going to really be prosecuted. I mean, could be, but it's very unlikely. Um, it's just people like me that know better. Yeah. I think, I think like (laughs) it's not even the fear angle. It's the, I don't want to get involved in this Mm because I don't know if I should. I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't want to accuse, I don't want to falsely accuse someone of something. And and like I said, they, they, you know, you're not falsely accusing anyone. You're just telling DCS what you know, and they're going to be the ones that investigate it and ultimately accuse. Do you have a backup? Because I have, I have dealt with DCS on several occasions and found them to be uh, uh, unbelievably incompetent. <laughs> like, so is there a secondary way to kind of go about thing? No offense, but just in my experience, I've found the DCS system to be like any other bur- bureaucracy or government agency. Just I have flawed yeah. pe- pe- people who care deeply but are have their hands tied by bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's also the National Human Trafficking Hotline, okay. which is one eight eight eight. Three seven three seven eight eight eight. But what's nice about that too is you can actually text them. Yeah, mm, um, awesome. To, at two three three seven three three. If it's a dangerous situation, you can text help or info, and they can try to get somebody out there right away. But what you do when you call them is they they field the call and then they channel it down to whomever the um, law enforcement officer is in your jurisdiction. So that's that's national. People who generally deal in that local law enforcement with. Right. Trafficking. Exactly. Thank okay. you. That's yeah. yeah. I think the That's texting is actually really good because in this day and age that we live in, I think a lot of people have a hard time um, literizing what they actually want to say. So maybe they saw something and it's weird, but it's hard for them to like physically say it because if they don't know or, you know, they mm-hmm. just have all these other conflicting emotions with it. And, you know, we're all we're just used to texting or emailing and we don't have to actually have that you know voice to voice or face to face calling dcs i can tell you what parking lot i was sitting in what the weather looked like i can tell you everything about that moment because it was a it was it was not a traumatic experience but it was an emotional gut-wrenching experience to call and talk about something that a two-year-old told me about Mm -hmm. and it's hard so i think texting gives you that time to like really kind of put out what you want to say reread it and so i think people probably would be more likely to use that than to to physically call and and my apologies lael because you are on a libertarian podcast so like my my oh yeah no 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 i get it listen i get it they're just my colleagues sometimes so like my the next time i went in to give a report on the same situation Mm -hmm. they 
they had taken it, but nobody had read it clearly. I mean, mm-hmm. just it's so I, I think let's talk a little bit about that, because it seems like in some of these situations, uh, several of my friends have had to be so dogged to get a police officer to pay attention or one friend in Amanda's story. She had to have a deer camera with 197 photos to get out of the 20 police officers she went to one finally took a report on it i mean it it doesn't seem like really it, yeah sorry it's, i'm just it's like, a whole situation <laughs> but i've i've had a lot of friends who who go to law enforcement and they don't get the response and maybe some of it is that it's such an emotional thing where like even the slightest brush off makes you go never mind mm-hmm. you know because it is intense but um how dogged should we be about reporting some of these things and if you get one bad officer who tells you something that's inappropriate go to another go to that's another, when you call lail hill and and i i intervene <laughs> and i can be a liaison right <laughs> well it's a, a this, victim advocate it's hard to find a lail hill in every every right you yeah know. <laughs> um but how how dogged should we be i think you have to be persistent and i and i hate to say that you should that need should ever arise but i'm a realistic person so i understand that it does i can tell you what we do on our end in a training component is we are um teaching our officers about um, trauma-informed forensic um, interview methods and Mm. believing victims because Mm -hmm. um, there's victims there is when a victim has gone through trauma it affects their brain it affects the way people remember things it affects the way they present um we we talk to juries about this um have you ever uh, laughed at a funeral cried at a wedding things like mm. that people your your demeanor is gonna be different in um grief just as trauma presents in different ways right. so if a victim doesn't present exactly like you think they should that does not mean that they are lying and right. so we're trying to do a better job of making sure that our officers from the street officers to the detectives to anybody who's going to come in contact with um, our victims understands this. And so we're all getting better at it, I think. And we're trying to do a better job of that. Mm-hmm. I, I really do think that there is a an increasing sensitivity to this issue. And I think the Me Too movement has really helped in a lot of ways. And things like surviving R. Kelly. I, th- I think so too. And, you know, I was thrilled when all this, fuss, this, this first started happening. But we as a society are a certain way. And there comes a point when we start to get desensitized to it mm-hmm. and i think the pendulum swings the other way and it's going to get to a point where people are sick of hearing about it and i am not and i don't want anybody to think that i am and i still i want to hear victims um reporting and coming out and standing up for themselves but my focus is always on what's a juror gonna see or think and right. so i have to think about what's your average citizen who's going to come in and um decide someone's guilt uh, what are they going to think about those things? And that stuff really does affect um, jurors, and especially even more now with social media. I mean, we've seen um, politically what Facebook and um, Twitter and things like that. Everybody is more in the know about things, but are they also kind of less in the know because there's so much misinformation that is? Well, there's um, almost like a two D quality to it. You know, we talked in the last episode about porn and how you know th- that robs you of intimacy, but you don't think about it because it's almost like two D. It's like mm-hmm. you're participating in it, but you're not participating right. in it. And that, and so when you watch the all the Netflix documentaries and you watch all the true crime shows, it almost starts to take desensitize you a little bit. But I, I don't think you can ever discount sitting across from a Miranda telling the story and not have that emotion, you know? Absolutely. So that's part of why we're doing this. Uh, someone on the, on the 
YouTube uh, comments just said, I agree. I went to the cops about my abusive ex-husband, told them he threatened to kill me, and the cop told me, quote, don't break up your family over that. No help with possible sexual child abuse either. And and so I, it, it is a real problem with, with street officers, to be frank. And this is a person that's commenting live. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry that you went through that. I mean, what, what state are they out I'm of? I'm not sure. Um, so, and that's why it's so important to have a victim's rights organization like the Indiana Coalition for Crime Victims' Rights because, um, and actually, I got to look at uh, our statutes, but because I, I think it just says the prosecutor and like the judicial um, members of the judicial system have to treat the victim with dignity and respect. But that's that's a clear violation. Again, a libertarian of, podcast. Just because yeah. the law says something doesn't mean the cops are going to do it. But right, but to was, add she's on in that Wisconsin. is that right? And so, but there, there. I hope that they have a grievance procedure for her. And I know that the Indianapolis uh, IMPD does. Um, and so if um, a victim. You you know, needs to um, report a grievance such as that, they can go on IMPD's website and report that. Um, I personally think that there should be an unbiased separate organization like Indiana Coalition for Crime Victims' Rights that's a nonprofit um, that's not affiliated for them to file a grievance because that way it's a separate, there's more trust there, right? I mean, so let me ask this. So she's in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if if you get a reaction like that from someone when you're trying mm-hmm. to maybe raise a concern for yourself or others, should you go to maybe a separate organization that's outside of the system that can then maybe be an advocate? Would would that be a good move? I, I think it's really up to them. I mean, because there's so much control that's taken from them already, right? right. I mean, they, they didn't... They, they didn't want to be a crime victim. They didn't, you know, they didn't ask to be abused and this and that. And so just um, and for me personally, as a social worker, just giving them options and, and really not letting them direct where they want to where they want to go and how they want to see justice and giving by giving them the options and then supporting what those decisions but are. How, how does a victim get to you? Is my question uh, through awesome podcasts like this, <laughs> right? But <if> you're <laughs> with- a lot of marketing and media, and right. Things like that. So. Uh-huh. You, I don't mean to make the prosecutor uncomfortable about my anti-police rants, uh, but um, <laughs> well, I have, if, I have something to add on that too. But, okay. yeah. but if you're if you're in that situation, it, from a prosecutor, like from a standpoint of prosecuting a case, uh, is it problematic to to go to an outside organization? Well, first, it's really incredibly disheartening, obviously, for me to hear that because we believe victims. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is what we teach our officers. And I'm not saying that – I know this happens. One bad apple versus the 99. It's one person's personal beliefs. It's like just, you know, Mm -hmm. it's perception and it's, you know, whatever. You just can't have an organization of – thousands of people and not have some people who don't have empathy and and so so i don't mean to paint all police officers that way but i do think that this is a this is a common thread i mean i've had a friend who said why didn't you just shake your boobs until uh he was outside the window like why don't you shake your boobs to keep him around it is it's 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 common unfortunately (laughs) i hate saying that but it is is that a could that have worked probably sure (laughs) um if you you saw someone physically (laughs) out your window but the thing is your mind doesn't work that way when you're in a scared situation you don't think you're being hunted Um, exactly it's fight or flight exactly you need to be held accountable and fired 
Yeah. <laughs> right. But to answer your actual question, in Indiana, at least, we have the Indiana Coalition to End Sexual Assault. Mm-hmm. And um, they will advocate for you. Okay. So if Amazing somebody were in that um, kind of situation, I would recommend here, at least locally or in the entire state, really, to call them. Every state has something like that. Um, and they get federal funding. They get federal dollars to be in existence. So um, that that would be a place to start. I mean, I know personally it's just the way it works. I've had people in my personal life call me and say, hey, this happened. Um, can you help me? And I, I do. Mm-hmm. I make the call. That, that's one thing that I've noticed about every, every area of government and having been around it for almost 20 years um, – the most popular person in town is a guy named Abdul that we have on the program a lot because Abdul knows everybody. And so if you can find that Sherpa who will get you to the right person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's sort of the part of uh, just how government and bureaucracy works. Is, so my ultimate point to those listening is that if you run into one roadblock, don't back down and just ignore it. Go go find other people. If you find one em- unempathetic person, there's going to be an organization in your city, town, state – that is empathetic and will help you get the right resources and help you get out of a situation. And so if you run into those situations, don't stop fighting. Keep going. Find the people who can help you. And, uh, you know, I know it's difficult, but it, it one, one bad response does not mean that you should stop, that mm-hmm. you should end there. Yeah, and are you familiar with 211? I'm not. Uh, it's called Connect to Help. So, you know, and this is a, a nationwide number. Um, so anywhere you're at, even if you're in a rural community, anybody can call 211 to get community resources and, and get some guidance on, on where to go when things like that happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in, in just in, just to add on that, because I, ha- I have to say this, because I, I am a huge supporter of law enforcement, um, I, and, and there are some bad apples, and and but there's some good ones too. And I, I always Absolutely. use this technology and, um, um, analogy, technology <laughs> that I just made up a new word. Ana- I don't know if you've heard analogy. acknowledge, but that's a new one. So I've been acknowledging an analogy that I had, um, so basically when I worked in the restaurant industry, I just remember working so hard for so many people and they would tell me that I gave them such good service. Um, but they never, they never mentioned it to my manager. Right. Um, but that one time, <laughs> that one yeah. time I gave really terrible right. service to somebody, they went online, they told that's the corporation. Yep. Uh, yeah. And so it's just like, I do think that people generally respond more to, to uh, negative feelings and emotions. It really lights the fuel um, and, and you know provides fuel to the fire within their personalities and everything because they want justice. Mm-hmm. And so they're more likely to discuss more of the injustices in society versus um, the good things. And, and, and I see that with, with media sometimes. Um, I, I've known a lot of law enforcement officers that have done amazing things that the media doesn't really cover much. Uh, so. Right. Absolutely. Um, I, I just wanted to add that because I can tell you, I mean, listen, I'll be the first to uh, call out someone. Look, I just said they should be fired. <laughs> but I'm also going to say, too, that we have some amazing law enforcement officers with IMPD here in the city that care tremendously about victims. Um, and and especially at the, the higher level with um, our captains and sergeants and things. And so I definitely recommend for people to... Um, Try to get to them somehow if you yeah. can figure that out and get to them because definitely the the ones that are higher in command they they really care about victims they have a lot of training they've been doing this for thirty plus years and they I think that I'm confident that they'll take care of the situation if 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 they can somehow get in t- touch with those guys so 
So let's jump back to you unless you have something to say. Well, what I, it goes back to me with what I was getting ready to say is that um, when I was dealing with person number one, um, bef- long before I knew anything for sure was even really wrong, I felt like something was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had kind of tried to distance myself and, and it just wasn't working. But again, it wasn't anything up front, right? Like He wasn't just like up front, like, oh, I'm not going to leave you alone. So let's... Uh, let's kind of start back. Okay. Uh, not to interrupt, yeah, but let's yeah. kind of give. Let's start. Go back to the to the beginning here. Like okay. let's start at the beginning of the person one story. Okay. Um. I I had known person one for about three years before I started dating him. Um. I had gotten out of a long on and off relationship and was just kind of off the rails in in a, in a sense. Um. Not anywhere near where I would go off the rails later, but um. Just kind of like you know. Doing just different things because, you know, obviously, um, you know, dating a certain type of guys or having a certain it wasn't really it hadn't gotten me anywhere. So I was just kind of branching out. You were dating jerks and then. Well, you know what? After the last two people I've dated, they've got that long six year relationship off and on. That guy was a damn angel. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, he was an angel. Person zero was actually perfect. It wasn't uh, perfect. It wasn't meant to be for us. But at the same time, nothing horrible like what I would deal with later. Um, But the you know resentment that i had towards the relationship and just all of that and just my own like empowerment of leaving that relationship and i was doing pretty good in my life at that time and was just like yeah i you know i can do whatever i want to do and and so i i had known person one like i said for a couple of years and uh you know he always like i knew that he liked me and stuff and but i just for whatever reason i really just couldn't even tell you why but i just was always just kind of like something about it just was like no 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 not for you sort um, of in your stronger moments yeah exactly yeah. that's what led in but then um i ended up going to an event with him and in my weaker moment like he just latched on um and and where i was at in my life I just tried to again make allowances for what was for the for the little things that were going on that were not in the norm for me, um, and that's because you know. Can you uh, give some detail to that? You know, just I don't know. Um, always saying yes. I mean, never. You know, loved every single thing I did. I could do no wrong. I, you know. Basically, like my little sidekick. You went from a guy who was an independent person, who was a little more. Uh, th- th- there was there was friction, I would say, to somebody who was very. We just lived our own separate lives, right. but this was somebody that was just all about me and, and just whoa, whoa, whoa. quote unquote sweet and yeah, just yeah. And, and literally all about me. And so I was just like, well, this is great. This is, you know. Like oh, okay, this is fine. Who doesn't want to um, be a queen? He wasn't. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> right? he didn't. Um, he wasn't like very successful, and in like you know the guy I did before, he was very successful because he was very driven. Like again, he just had different goals in life. Well, this guy's goal is to just consume people because mm. um, I, I wasn't the first person that he sent it to, um, and, and so you know he had two kids, just. I, you know, my daughter was at a point, I never really wanted to date people that had children, um, especially when she was younger, because I just didn't want to deal with the baggage. I didn't have to deal with my daughter's dad. And so I just liked my life the way it was. I wanted it to be about my kid. I didn't want to have to deal with all the other little things. So I never dated people with kids. Um, so this guy had two kids. He wasn't super successful. He was my age. And I've always dated people about 10 years older. And so all of the things that I just would never typically date in a guy, very scrawny. Right. So like what was the what was the attraction? <laughs> the attraction was just like 
it seemed like he just got me and like we had a lot in common and so and you we said had mirroring fun. behavior exactly and that's exactly and that's one of the times that we had spoken just as friends in the years previous it it, it hit me i was just like wow this is so weird of like you know is it weird that somebody would like be thinking the same exact way I think or maybe it's just because I've always dated older guys I don't I don't know what the difference you know but mirroring behavior basically is just that and that's somebody exactly that, what it was somebody that reflects back to you your behavior which is it always kind of like your first sign that maybe something's not right. Right, here. like they're ca- like a chameleon. They become right. exactly yes. who you are. Right, and I'm a, I've had to kind of be a chameleon in a sense. So but I, I, it, I, it, I just try to rationalize that. it from my own thought process. Yeah, that that mirroring behavior is a lack of their own identity. Mm-hmm. And right. that lack of self sufficiency, that lack of a person that has found their own worth, their own life, their own strengths, weaknesses, mm-hmm. that lack of a solid foundation and lack of integrity, basically integrating their their inner life and their outer life into one thing leads to somebody, and this is, listen up everybody, This everybody has this, everybody has this moment in their life or, or they start out that way, I certainly did, where you start out where you don't really have much of your own identity so you're trying to find it in other people or get your needs mm-hmm. met by other people. And so that mirroring behavior is an act of please like me because I need you because I don't like myself. And so that's always one of those first little warning signs that somebody, something's not right. They're maybe not a strong person. Mm -hmm. And and so that mirroring behavior, I think, is a good warning sign. Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah. yeah, and I, I mean, I wow, didn't know that Chris, term, but that yeah, was it. Background in social science? Yeah. Uh, no, I was just very fucked up. And I, had, <laughs> yeah. I did four years of therapy and a hard oh, okay. time. I was I mean, like, oh yeah. my goodness. Twice a week, I was you in there. You just taught me something. Yeah. I'm like, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, I just, because I had basically raised myself, mm-hmm. I had to work through that sense of being a chameleon in my own terms. Um, and so then I just, I tried to be, I guess understanding about somebody else or just whatever or then at that point i was actually just kind of taken off it's so strange because my intuition told me well that's kind of strange that's not right but then i was just like well you know what that's because you're just an idiot miranda and you don't have the right experiences or you you know what i mean your your own self-doubt i played myself and Right. I used my own self-doubt against against myself at that point but then in turn his mirroring behavior that's what he would do all down the road and can you tell us how old you were around this time i was 31 okay yeah Yeah, i mean Mm -hmm. and so and it's so so strange to me because again i you know you were also at a point i think where you you had kind of lost a lot of support systems and that's one Mm -hmm. thing that if you have a lot of friends like right now i have a lot of friends who will tell me i'm being dumb and so if you've if you've got depression and you kind of isolate yourself and you lose a lot of those relationships that can be your guardrails that yeah. that when you have those self doubts, I have a council of people I can go to. But I think at that point, my in, self my support system was the guy that I had broken up with. Yeah, um, most of my friends mm-hmm. were his friends' girlfriends. Mm-hmm. So because I had been a single mom, and at that time, like I said, I was a dancer, so I wasn't. I didn't relate to my coworkers. I went to work and did my job. It just like these people are crazy. Would go home, and so I didn't have a lot of friends. Yeah, um, and so I didn't have a lot of family and. Through the beginning of dating him, I only further distanced myself from the family that I had because that was, you know, he he caused that, of course. Right. Um, and so he alienated me, you know, again, with that whole mentality of 
playing against myself. Like I had self doubt about, you know, my family and how they felt about me or this and that. And he's just like, yeah, that's that you're, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, that's not right that they feel that way or would treat you that way. And, you know, he just further distanced me Making from you them. dependent more on him and breaking exactly. you down emotionally. And, um, mm-hmm. what, what are some ways that he would kind of try to isolate you? Um, well, I mean, Throughout the whole time of a lot of horrible things happened and I didn't know that he was behind them. Some of the things I thought were just organic and happened. Some of the things I thought other people were doing to me. Um, and the whole time I was not in my right frame of mind because he was actually drugging me. So mm. everything was, you know, even more chaotic than yeah. it even was in my own mind. Um, so looking back, the things that he, you know, if I felt like, somebody you know had caused this or that to happen he would only reinforce that and so and then later when i would say wait a minute like you know what i mean and i would just kind of start to kind of get my grounding like this you know what you're doing in this situation isn't right or you have something to do with this or that maybe and then he would say well no you said yourself that it was this person or this is what happened or that Keeping track of all the chess pieces on the board and then playing them against you. Yeah, but I've got a memory like mm-hmm. nobody's business. Yeah, she's, and so she will fuck you up. You might get the first time you might just were kind of have me bamboozled. Um, and so I'll just say nothing because I just I'll start processing it in my mind. Right. But the second time you try it, bitch, please. <laughs> right. So let's talk about some of that isolation and that that kind of like tunneling you away from and. and pitting people against you i mean what are what are some other ways that you've seen that particular behavior that isolation that subtle moving you away from friends and family and disconnecting you from your support systems that might pit you against that person uh this is a happens with men and women trust me i've been with i've been in a lot of relationships with narcissists as a codependent and that have have that has happened where you grow more codependent and you end up they, that person is is feeding off of you and they isolate you so like what are some of those warning signs that if you're experiencing some of this or if a loved one is kind of going through it that you should watch wow this person hasn't texted me in a while or other things that may be happening so the thing about domestic violence that people really have to remember is that it's not about anger people are like they just can't control their anger and then there's this violent episode or they lost their temper and they said these horrible things to me no it's about power and control Mm -hmm. and having control over your um your intimate partner and what miranda was saying about isolationism that's a that's a big component of it and what you said was so interesting because um He's amping you up and making you think it's your idea. And, and when you're in the moment, you don't even know it. Mm. And then you wake up mm. one day and you're like, God, I haven't talked to my friend in six months. How did that even happen? And what you also said that he did is he was trying to gaslight you. And mm. that's when they recall something to you that's completely different than what happened. And even the people who have the strongest confidence in themselves and their own memories, it does cause you to think twice. You're like, is that how that went down? Mm-hmm. And for somebody who doesn't have that confidence in their... um their recall of events maybe they're like oh my gosh i guess he's right and then they start thinking they're crazy i've even Mm -hmm. i've had excuse me i've had friendships that where the friend is almost a little jealous or there's something there and so they're always just kind of keeping you off balance a little bit exactly there's always just a like a little planting a little seed of doubt or just a little Mm -hmm. push some in some direction they want to be your everything and then the second they're gone you're like why do i feel okay (laughs) and and so i think in relationships it's important to kind of notice that "Mm, that person's like I'm losing support or the mm-hmm. gaslighting I think is 
one of the most uh it comes from a movie in the 30s or 40s where the lights are flickering the Mm -hmm. gas lights are flickering and the woman is in a domestic violence situation in this movie and uh, she's like why are the lights flickering and he's like they're not flickering and so it's literally like she what she can see with her eyes what she understands in her mind Mm -hmm. to be true he is making her doubt and she begins to doubt it. I'm so impressed that you know the origin of that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he, he's educated me on some uh-huh. things and I'm like, wow, I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, it always reminds me of the Shaggy song, It Wasn't Me. Right. I mean, because that's the same mm-hmm. thing. She caught me on the counter, it wasn't me. Yeah. And, you know, I've like, I just caught you on the counter and you're saying, but but that happens. It's, I think it's, did that a lot. it's a psychological abuse. And, yeah. um, you oh, know, yeah. Shaughnessy was talking about it's all about power and control. Um, um, and and in in our community, in the domestic violence community, we have what's called the power and control wheel and the equality wheel. And um, definitely, if your if your listeners want to know about some of the warning signs, um, they can Google that. Um, you just Google power and control wheel, uh, inequality wheel, and it'll pop right up. But the um, using isolation is is on the wheel, and it says uh, controlling. And I, and I hate that this is gender neutral again because like, there's a lot of um, women that um, are abusive and are abusers. So, um, especially and mentally or emotionally. So especially, gonna... especially when it comes to power at power games. It's, it's, it may not uh-huh. be a physical thing or there yeah. may not be sexual violence, but mm-hmm. there is definitely a it's a control thing because mm-hmm. of their lack of self-esteem yeah. or self-worth. I, yes. I've been guilty of that myself mm-hmm. and, and, and in much minor, much more smaller minor ways. Like I can look back and think about how I was aware of my actions and behaved a certain way to get a certain reaction. Or you Listen know. up. Mm-hmm. If you're a parent to a teenager, every single... Think about all of our dating experiences when you don't understand the dynamics of power in a relationship and equality. Mm-hmm. Or, like, I think every parent ought to learn some of these. Google this. And, power and control wheel and, and equality explain it wheel. to your kids, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, and... Absolutely. And uh, the Domestic Violence Network is an amazing uh, resource here in Indianapolis that people can reach out. They do a lot of uh, prevention and go into schools um, and talk about this. But the isolation piece, and, and, and I'm sure as you tell your story, because I can tell you that abusers, I mean, they all have the same MO. I mean, they all have. Yeah. I mean, it's literally when I when I go over this it's power textbook. and control. Yeah. When I go over this power and control wheel with survivors, they're like, yep, yep, that's him, that's him. And, and the isolation piece is, um, you know, controlling what he or she does, um, who he or she sees and talks to, what he or she even reads, um, <clears throat> where he or she goes. Clothing. Um, yep, limiting outside involvement, uh, using jealousy to justify actions, and yeah, I think that I just that's, love you so much. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, so that's the isolation it, piece. The of wheel that. when you Google it, it's just a an illustration that was developed to explain this to mm-hmm. people because it yeah, makes it so easy. Because in the middle of the wheel, you have a hub, which is the power and control, and then the different spokes mm-hmm. represent the methods by which people um, exert that power and control. Yeah, mm-hmm. so using intimidation, using emotional abuse, using isolation, minimize denying and blaming, using children, using male privilege, I'm offended, mm-hmm. using economic abuse, <laughs> using coercion and th- <laughs> threats. Well, I mean, listen, using male privilege, I mean, obviously it's it's mm-hmm. but the reality is there's plenty of a, I've been in situations where the f- female privilege has been used yeah. um and i don't mean sex and that's I just and that's in, in, it can in, be that but it can I, be many things i will do, i i can get on tender right now and find five new guys if you don't treat me the certain way i think or if, i'm gonna take your kids from you right and you will never see them again it, oh, <laughs> you yeah. know yeah, things like that that's ways. I, oh yeah mm-hmm. and some of the stuff with uh person number one it's just funny like so I'm, 
So something would happen. And again, I would have no idea that's even related to him. And of course it all was, but I, so something would happen and I would have one theory as to what happened. But I, I went through so much and it's like, I'm an investigator. So it's like, I would try to figure out what's going on and, you know, get so I can fix the problem or just whatever. And so then, you know, a little bit down the line, like I might come up with a new theory, like, and you'd say, well, but you already said it, that it was this or that. And that she's trying to shut me down mm-hmm. from trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and then person number two, because I had been through all that, I, I did behave in the most craziest of ways. And, and I, so I don't really make any apologies for it. Some of it, I think, was just I was going through a lot. Some of it, because I was not in my right frame of mind due to being ra- drugged with rat poison uh, for a year. Yeah, so you you know there was a period of time where you ha- you thought maybe there was mold at work or there, I thought like, somebody from my job had poisoned me I thought like, there was mold I had mm-hmm. no clue um and I went medical I went to the doctors I went to hospitals and it you know when I look back he was always there he again because of the tracking device on my car and because of the cloning of my phone you know I was in like one day I woke up and I had this place on my face that had just erupted that day I hadn't touched it my lymph nodes were so swollen and this is you know months and months into the skin condition I had that I couldn't figure out um, your face was kind of peeling my face was, and, I had yeah. just big weird like they're almost like cystic acne but the you would pop them and like this weird white stuff would come out and i i had perfect skin before that and so all these things are happening my hair wouldn't grow my nails wouldn't grow everything you know and i had no clue um what was going on so i'm trying to figure it out so i can fix the problem and um that day that I went to the emergency room, I had already been to a dermatologist. I'd already done this. The dermatologist that he sent me to, and I, oh. he went with me. Um, so I'm in the I'm in the parking lot of the ER, and he calls me. He's like, "What are you doing?" And we were broke up at the time, and you know, but I was just like, you know, it's almost like a Stockholm syndrome. I didn't realize I was a victim at the time, but at the same time, I still I felt bad for him, so I still talked to him and whatever. And so. Um, because I was like, oh God, he's so in love with me and I don't want anything to do. So I felt bad. And um, I was just like, yeah, well, I woke up, my lymph nodes are so swollen, I can't move my head and just this and that. And I'm going in. He's like, well, just wait, I'm going, I'll come. And I'm like, oh, look, I'm a grown woman. Like, I don't need you to come to the doctor with me. Like, right. I'm fine. And he insisted, and I still told him no, and he still showed up. And what happened, again, I was in a very agitated state. You set a very clear boundary. You set a very clear no. And he violated that boundary. But under the, you know, guise of caring. caring right. And so then right. I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh, no, you know, I'm how shitty is my life that when somebody cares about me, this is my reaction or I don't I don't see it or I think it's weird or I'm, I'm just being a dumb or girl. intrusive. Exactly. And so and actually the few people that I had reached out to prior just in the months leading up to this event, um, I had reached out to my ex-boyfriend and then another guy that I had just dated for a short time, but also new person, number one. Um, and I was crying and I had no clue what was going on. And and I just was like, hey, I I just I reached out to the only people that I even thought to reach out to, which were these two guys at two different times. Um, and both of them bi- literally told me that sounded like he actually cared about me and I should just be thankful that I had a guy in my life that cared about me. Um, I'm like, I, I can't get rid of this guy. Like, you don't understand. Like, and I'm like, all right. these things are happening and I don't, and I didn't know that they were him, but at the same time, I'm just like, all these things are happening and then, I, and this guy's just too much and I can't get rid of him and I don't know what to do. And, and they're like, well, you know, somebody that actually cares about you, you need to, blah, blah, blah. and it's like, and 
Somebody that actually cares yeah. about and you. And so I get off said. the phone and I, I'm just <clears throat> mad because, you know, at the same time, I'm not weak-minded. So I get that they were asshats for saying that. And I get that that's really not... And But then at the same time, I'm like, how shitty is my... It, just, it almost makes you want to give up. It's not because I think what they're saying is true, but because I'm just like, well, how shitty is my life that that, that is people's perception? <laughs> that when something like this is going on and that's their response to me, it's like, really? Because yeah. I, I knew well, even at that time, that was not the case. Yeah. Like, it didn't matter if he cared about me or not. If I'm crying and I'm just completely out of my mind, like going crazy and trying to tell you I don't understand what's happening and all these things, and then something's wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if that person cared about me or not. Right. And um, so I go into the doctor and I explain everything. And by the time I tell the practitioner person all the stuff that's happened, the lady just very judgy. And again, my face is messed up. So people like I already feel bad. I already feel judged. It was a very difficult time for you. So I mean, I contemplated suicide at least three times a day. Mm. Like I would love to just come up with a solid plan of killing myself. Like that was my thought every day. Right. And um, the the lady, I can still remember putting in the information, and she's just like, are you always this, um, like, amped up or this anxious? And, like, look at my damn face. Yeah. Would you not? What do you? Yeah, I'm excited. Um, I have an issue, and it's been going on, and I feel like maybe something like this is flared up. Maybe we can figure out what's going on. Um, I think it's also, I want to interject here, and I apologize if I'm mm-hmm. oversharing, but... You would you would lay in you just be in bed all the time. You just couldn't get out of bed. I would. Bed I would lay in bed all day and depressed. cry and just cry and cry and cry. He would come over to my house and crawl in bed with me and know that I contemplated suicide every day. And tell me about how, you know, other people may not like me because of my face and this and that, but he would always be there for me. Right. And he, when when he showed up, the actual doctor comes in, the doctor wouldn't touch me, they didn't test me for anything, they didn't do anything. He tells me that I need to go back to my dermatologist, and if she said it's cystic acne, then it's probably cystic acne. It was not cystic acne. I mean, I absolutely yeah. not. And yeah. and also, my lymph nodes were so swollen. Something was going on. Wouldn't touch me. Wouldn't do anything. So I don't know what he said to them. But the bottom line is, and I found out later that he was telling people that I was on meth. If I mm-hmm. was on drugs, uh, shouldn't you be? And I'm in. The, if I brought myself to the hospital. Shouldn't you maybe just test me and maybe call the police? Maybe test me and say, ma'am, you're on draw. Like something. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't do any. They did nothing. Um, they He sent me away. And actually, I was so furious. Like I just remember in my mind, like I wanted to attack the man and just gnaw his face off. Is is I did. And let me bring in Shaughnessy and Lael. Like is that an extreme case or is that fairly – I mean it sounds extreme rat poison and, and all, but – I think that's fairly extreme. Yeah. So I mean, it manifests differently, right? So oh, like yeah. some people, they're getting beaten regularly. Mm. You know, it just it looks there. Like we said before, there are some things that you're going to find in every single case, but no case is exactly alike either. Right. You know, and, our, our friend on YouTube, my ex used to threaten to destroy my stuff if I was gone longer than thirty minutes. He'd demand. He would scream. He'd be waiting on the porch to scream at me. That extreme anger. Sometimes it's displayed it like that. Sometimes it's a sneakier form like this. Mm-hmm. It's, it presents as caring as opposed to anger. Right. Well, he probably knew exactly, or he figured out what he could do to Miranda because he knew that for her, she, um, he, he'd probably lose her if it was so blatant like that. But what he was doing, exactly, the abuse he work. was doing is he's inflicting this thing on her, and it's just further isolating her and making, mm-hmm. trying to make her think. I'm the only one who could ever be here for you. Yeah. Let me, and let me share a personal story that I'm not proud of. 
um, because it's not nearly to that particular uh, extreme. Hold on here. Restroom break. Um, because I want to show that it doesn't necessarily manifest itself in always in extreme cases. It can be in just uh, a typical boyfriend-girlfriend relationship with one of the parties being unhealthy or both of the parties being unhealthy. I was in therapy pretty early on, and I had uh, just, like, fortunately this person had kind of pushed me into therapy. And I was um, just saying to my therapist, like, well, I don't want her to do that something that was good for her, something that was going to benefit her, something that was going to grow her as a person. I don't want her to do that. And she she goes, why? I said, because if she does that thing, then she's going to get better and then she's not going to like me because she'll be better than me. Uh, Essentially, Mm -hmm. she goes, did you just hear what came out of your mouth? And I said, I dislike myself so much that I want that person to not grow because I I don't think I can grow or be a better person, and so therefore I want to keep them down. And I went, that's the worst thing I've ever thought. (laughs) You know, I mean, it was just a moment of realization where I did that work, where I think if you've listened to this program for any length of time, or Miranda can tell you as as a close friend, like... I'm not the type of person who is an abusive person or... Oh, not at all. Like when my ex-wife, you know, in your typical divorce squad, like, why? what happened? Well, he was abusive. Like, three friends laughed in her face when she said it, just because I'm Winnie the Pooh. But, like, <laughs> I still had that in me because it was such a tremendous lack of self-worth and such a lack of my own identity that I had to... And I didn't want to do the work to get better because it was hard or scary. Uh, I wanted to keep my partners down because I didn't want to do the work and it's easier just to, to abuse that or to control or to manipulate or, you know, and I, and I never got to that level. I, I never got to a level where I let it leak out of my head, but it's it was like there you were doing it, it with that intention. You were no, doing a survival or from a you sickness, know. a yeah, place exactly. of a, a codependency and, and a, you know, uh, basically adult children of alcoholic standpoint. Like it's, but I think that's the root, that's gotta be the root of it. I don't know about you guys, but, or you ladies, what you might think, but I just see, um, I have a lot of, empathy for victims of domestic violence but i also look at the the people that are the abusers and you go what happened in their life that they can't get this right (laughs) i mean what are some common themes that you've seen in the people who perpetrate domestic or sexual violence i mean i think you bring up a really good point and one of the things that we teach young prosecutors who do these cases specifically specifically domestic violence is that justice and may look differently in a domestic violence case than it does in other cases because what's the end goal um the vast majority of victims domestic violence cases either recant minimize or just don't show up Mm. and that's for all of these reasons that we've been talking about um and I try to explain to them, you know, you're seeing this is your job, but this is this person's life. And you've got to keep that in mind. And what is your victim's goal at the end of the day? They just don't want it to happen anymore. They want them to go away. They want to stop the hunting. They either want them to go away or they just want them to get better because they still want to be with them, but they just don't want this happening. So I'm like, you have to take that into consideration and figure out how you're going to proceed with your case. Yeah. Is there programming that you can get that person into that perhaps um, – will make it so that they don't do this anymore. Yeah. And the big thing, and I 
teach this to police officers as well, is that kids who come from homes where there is uh, violence, or have you ever guys ever heard of the adverse childhood experiences scale? Mm-hmm. It's like 10 questions, I think. And if you're uh, four or above, you are much more likely to be involved in the criminal justice system, either as a defendant or a victim. But it actually goes beyond that. You're it's much more likely. It's crazy because it's mm-hmm. like health concerns that you wouldn't necessarily attribute to childhood um, trauma. But a lot of our um, offenders, both male and female, come from homes where it happened, and a lot of the victims come from homes where it happened. Now, again, I'm not saying every single one of them is that yeah. way, but, but I, I but think it repeats. It's, it, it's cyclical. It's generational. I think her preteen experience. Mm-hmm. I've heard uh, from a lot of friends that like being molested or being abused at a younger age sets you up at a later point in your life for re-victimization in a, in a different or similar way. Absolutely. Yeah. Once you're victimized, you're way more likely to be victimized again. Because people are like, oh, she clearly this didn't happen. She also, and this happened before. No, it's and actually more yeah, likely. That's yeah. so crazy. And I, um, you know, when I, when I meet with victims, especially of domestic violence, I really want to let them know that this is not their fault. This yeah. has nothing to do with them. That these were, these abusers were once children that were likely raised in, in um, observing families family violence and and uh, it goes back to uh, I, I just had to pull it up because it's been years since I've studied any type of psychology but uh, Albert Bandura if you guys have heard of him he was the one with the Bobo clowns mm. and he he developed what's called social learning theory about basically how children model the behaviors of the adults in their life and so uh, with this particular experiment he had children um, observe adults um, uh, ones that were close in their life uh, punch the bobo clowns the clowns that would kind of fall over and pop back up mm-hmm. and then um, he had another group of kids um, that observed a different type of behavior and then he put the kids in the room and the, and the kids that witnessed the, the violence with the bobo clown um, also treated the bobo clown in that manner hmm. and so it's a learned behavior and it starts at a young age and I can't tell you how many times that when I've talked to survivors of domestic violence, that when I tell them that they were likely witnessed violence between their parents, they're like, yeah, they, he, he or she told me that they had a rough childhood. And, um, and you know, if you really want to get in the mental health aspect of it, they develop um, what's called in the mental health w- uh, world access to personality disorders. Um, which is, you know, your sociopaths, your narcissistic personality disorders, um, sometimes borderline personality disorder. Those all come out of child abuse and neglect and witnessing family violence. And so it, it really is a, a personality disorder in, in a lot of the profile oh, sure. of a lot of these um, abusers. And and speaking of that, and I just wanted to add, because we, we mentioned, um, you mentioned that you had contemplated suicide. So I definitely wanted to... Um, put that put that hotline on here. I think that's really important to note because survivors, they, you didn't just survive the violence and the abuse, but you had to survive the PTSD and the trauma. And, and you know, there's, unfortunately, we just seen with the Parkland uh, secondary survivors, two people that yeah. took their life. Newt- um, Newton as well. Yeah, and so um, I just, I wanted to... Um, pull up that hotline for anybody that has dealt with trauma and has ever experienced suicidal ideation. Um, there's help for you. Uh, there's definitely hope. Um, and um, please call this number. It's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 1-800-273-8255. That's 24-7. So you can call that anytime. So 
Um, so, um, yeah, just, so I want uh, – go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. And then I'm going to segue into what we just wrote about. Yeah. So just to jump into that is the, the, the thing is with people, I don't have an answer to what I'm about to say um, because it's an issue. But, um, you know, when I was contemplating suicide every day, I mean, I knew there were resources out there. I didn't want them. I wanted to die. So that is, I guess, really what, you know – I, I guess it comes into, you know, having people in your life and, and noticing that with people in your life and, and just hanging in there with them um, because yeah. they aren't going to necessarily reach out when they're in that lowest place. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've talked about my own struggles with suicide in the past, and for me, it's always two steps forward, one step back, but as long as you're moving forward, that's what matters. Taking care of your emotional, physical, spiritual, mental life, you know, focusing on your social uh, it, relationships, making sure you're getting exercise, going to the doctor. You know, if you need to learn how to get a therapist, all you could do is if you have health insurance, go to your health insurance website and look for somebody that does cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. or talk therapy. Or it, it's it it really wasn't that expensive for me to do it, but it it was like personal training. You know, you'll spend money on a diet or you'll spend money on your physical life, but then you won't spend $30 a week to go to the therapist Self-care. for a year, mm-hmm. which has taught me to be a better man has, has, I think if you go back and listen to this program five years between five years ago and now it's, it's night and day. So, uh, it's not hard and there are a lot of resources out there, but I think a lot of it is just moving forward. If you're going to like, for me, the way that I crawl out of it, do one good thing for yourself a day and call it quits. Like just start. Like there is, it's like today I'm just going to eat under 2000 calories because I'm not going to self-medicate with food or I'm going to leave my debit card at home so I don't buy too many books on Amazon. Can you tell I had a problem? Uh, Why are you not a social worker? I'm going to recruit you. My my phone would tell you that I am. But Um, but you're absolutely right. That's actually, I mean, part of what, at some point I realized you're not going to kill yourself. You don't have a, yeah. a good plan. And my luck, I'm just end up maiming myself and make things worse. So <laughs> right. that was really my mindset. And so I just, at some point I realized like, you don't have a choice. You're not going to die. Yeah. You yeah. you don't get to die now. Um, that's unfortunately not in the cards for you. And so <laughs> you need to start moving forward. And, right. and that was what I did. And, you know, this guy was so calculated and just, he's done this before. Like I said, so like I said, he has two children with a, they're twins with a, with a girl and she's, out of her mind okay just like she would say things like i would you know read the text messages and stuff they don't make sense like she's crazy crazy Mm. and so i never never that was another thing that never quite sat with me and i didn't even ask them like how did you have children with somebody that is clearly that out there oh she used to be fine um and you know he blamed it on after she had the children that this just happened well the since i had known him she cannot live alone she is now schizophrenic Mm. and she can never live on her own again she'll Mm. either have to live with somebody or in a home and it just blew my mind i'm like how does that happen overnight um but it happens overnight because he was poisoning her (laughs) He, I know that for a fact. I know that he did that to her. And it's called drug induced psychosis. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And she has an irreversible psychosis. This now. is a this has a term. 
Yeah. It does. She has an irreversible. Remember, psychosis. I have experience in, in mental health. Yeah. Too, so. It's just unfortunate yeah. that some things have some terms. Some people can mm-hmm. come back and, and some people have a fragile brain mm-hmm. and just there's mm-hmm. various circumstances that, and she was one of them. And now that I've been through what I've been through with him, I know for a fact he did it to her. But I also, going back to learned behavior, you know, his mom had to have a kidney transplant 10 years before and then... Um, as right at the end of my dealing with him, she was rehospitalized and all of the symptoms that she was rehospitalized for. And I don't know if she, how she is now or if she's ever, she, it looked like she may never be able to like live out of the hospital at this mm. point. And it was not related to her kidney that she had. Um, but there was internal bleeding they couldn't identify and just, and they were all actually long term effects of, of being poisoned with rat poisoning. Wow. And so I feel like <clears throat> this is not, yeah. And there was other behaviors from his dad that just, they struck me as weird with the whole thing. And I was like, wow, this is, these are people that are college educated, you know, and why would he, how could he be so naive about this or that? But it's because I feel like he probably did that to his mother as well. I mean, Shaughnessy, it, again, going back to there's no perfect victim. Like we're walking among successful people that may be engaged in this behavior. I mean, yeah. talk about well, they're, if they're they are probably successful if they're smart enough to keep doing these things mm-hmm. and get away with it. Right. Well, and that's mm-hmm. a good point because it's it, it's the flip side too. Um, there's no perfect victim, and then people look at a defendant, and if the defendant doesn't look the way that they think that they should look, this is majorly oh my gosh, so prevalent in both sex crimes cases and domestic violence cases. They're like. Well, He's so smart. I had a case where a guy was good looking. He had nice suits. Brock Turner. um, (laughs) Yeah. He was this, well, he was a smooth talker. Um, He was a great guy because you have to remember with those jurors in a sex case or domestic violence case, you're not just putting the evidence in front of them. That's what you're supposed to be doing. And we tell them you are to um, look at the evidence, the evidence only as it's presented and not be considering anything else. But it's just not true. It's their entire worldview that you're looking at. And if a guy like that could do this to her, then that could happen to me too. And that is real hard for people to make that jump. Yeah. No, I think – and I see that kind of when I mention – like if you talk about Kavanaugh on your Facebook, you you sort of start to see the same names popping up and you go – I wonder what's up with that guy or you're a little too aggressively defending this particular behavior or I I don't know. I just think there is it's a it's a much more prevalent problem than people might think and nobody wants to talk about it. Um, And it if you go on a date and he he works at a Fortune 500 company, it doesn't guarantee that he's not an abuser. I mean, it's it's again, it's not. We're not playing again, the type. Person it's- number one was not very successful or anything. But again, part of like what kind of gave me a soft spot for him to begin with was, oh, well, you know what? He is a single dad raising these two boys. Mm-hmm. Got to deal with the great. Like, it's like, you know, he's all, you know, you need to just give him a chance. You just need to. Da, da, da. Right. But it's like at the end of the day, he really wasn't those things he, per- he tried to portray himself as. Yeah. His parents had the boys most of the time. He really didn't have them very often creating a mask that you project it's a facade and what is it so maybe for some people it is mr successful who's got the good job who's gonna um buy you nice bags and um take you on nice vacations well this guy it it was just a different facade right it was i'm a good dad i'm a hard worker you know i know i don't have a lot of fancy things but i'm gonna take care of you i'm not like those other guys that you dated i may not have those things but i'm gonna support you i'm your biggest fan i'm this i'm that would never tell me no even when 
for instance, um, not last carb day, but the carb day before that, I literally got into a wet t-shirt contest where I was in nothing but basically my underwear on the back of a truck. And this is, again, part of it is because I had never gone wild like that in my youth because I had a kid to take care of, so I had to straighten up. But then part of it was, you know, again, my mind not being in the right place. But I literally was like, here, hold my phone, my chair, and all my stuff that I've been carrying around all day, and, and I want you to record everything. Cause I, and he did it. <laughs> now, who would do that? And well, you know what I mean? People are pouring <laughs> bottles of water at me, and I'm twerking on the back of a truck. And my underwear. Like, but he would do it. But the thing is, just like... All the other things he did, it's like he would never tell me no, but he would then behind the scenes try to do things to make them not happen. So, you know, he acted like he was totally cool with my job, but then he was doing things that destroyed my face, which A, took me away from that job, but then B, also made me dependent on him. So it's like, you know, more than one payoff. I I have only been to uh, a workplace of that variety one time to see you, and he was weirdly okay with a lot of what was going on. Oh, yeah, he would just act totally fine with anything and everything we'd we'd talk about it me and uh, another guy would be like there's something not right there like you don't show up and watch like you walk out of the back room and you're like how was it that's just a weird freaking behavior and you know (laughs) there was just things that happened you know even leading up to like just like small things that i again would never have guessed he had anything to do with but again he did he was behind the scenes the whole time causing them um, and that was friction at my workplace. It was this, it was that. And I used to smoke weed all the time. And so, and again, I was very, still even pretty headstrong. And so, you know, I, and I was honest. So at this point, I've already lost everything due to the depression and the stuff going on with my face and just whatever. And so I lost my apartment. I lost, you know, a lot of stuff. And so, and he was always there to help me. Um, I had moved in with a roommate that didn't work out. So I ended up, you know, coming to stay with him for a short time was the you know premise of me moving in there. My stuff was in storage. I had my clothes with me, um, my daughter, of course. And um, and it was just, I hated his house. I hated it. That whole thing actually even sucked more life out of me being there. Uh, but it just seemed like no matter what, I didn't pay bills there or nothing. And I still could not ever get anywhere get ahead and because you know i spent all my time in the gym because that was like my only safe place and then you know i would you know what i'm gonna go either buy weed from this guy or i'm gonna go smoke weed with this guy's my friend and da, da, da. And i would tell him and obviously you know with the tracking devices and everything else he knew that's what was going on and i would tell him that's what was going on and yet he still felt he you know he would never the tracking devices never stopped and he he had one in my car at all times he had two that he would switch out he paid a monthly fee to have real-time gps on so there was a lot of stalking there was so and and, you know i found Mm -hmm. out from somebody else that that may have actually been going on before we even started dating and before we started dating i didn't even talk to him he was my friend on facebook like i said i knew him for three years i had no so he'd been plotting this is yes and so this was very calculated and so you know, I would just, and the thing is, that's what's even more crazy. Because again, when you try to wrap your mind around something, it's like, you know, when you tell people, like, my ex boyfriend had tracking devices and this and that, it's like, they probably think, well, you're not a trustworthy person. Well, the bottom line is, I never did lie to him about any of the things I was doing. He was tracking me. He knew that I was telling the truth. And he still, the only reason I found the tracking devices is because instead of just pulling it out of my car for a day or two, because um, he would keep it in the wheel welding and somebody had sideswiped me, I was taking my car to be looked at. Instead of just taking it out until that was done for a day or two, he put it in the backseat headrest. And I, by the miracle chance of God, did I find it. And that was kind of the beginning of me 
understanding what was going on and getting away. That seems like an extreme thing, but that sort of, let's talk about stalking. Let's talk about that tracking behavior, that needing to know where you're at, control where you're at, understand, like, that seems to be a fairly common thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, how, 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 how could you see signs of that if you were in that particular situation? Because I, I would guess you were totally unaware that this was taking place till you find the it, right? The sick thing is, I wasn't, I mean, I can remember when I still had my apartment, my, the man, I used to, I had leased apartments there, you know, I'd lived there for a long time, then I leased apartments there, and then I just continued living there when I stopped working there. Um, my apartment manager, and, <laughs> This is, it's what's so crazy. My, fa- the stuff in my face had just kind of begun happening. Um, you know, it was a couple of months in probably. And my apartment manager came to me and see, we were good friends. And he said like, Hey, so, you know, what's going on with you? Something's not right. And like, and again, like most people, I think he assumed I was on drugs, uh, which is understandable. I get it. But, um, I mean, I literally pulled him into my kitchen and was like, like and again i had things were somewhat fine i had kept telling person number one like you know what you're, this is too much i need some space but we were still on good terms and but i still i mean i was i don't know i just felt it and i still and I, but yet it made me feel crazy it's just a million little moments i felt of, it but it made me crazy of doubting yourself yeah. like in this story you just sort of hear I, all these little moments of something's not right and then you ignore it yeah all yeah. these like little things that would happen or he would like i felt like he knew something that i hadn't told him yet and it was just like strange because mm. not like i was hiding it but how would he know before i could tell him just all these little things had happened and so i kind of felt like you know these things were kind of going on but then so he when he came to my house to talk to me i literally pulled him into my kitchen was like whispering like hey i don't under i don't know what's going on but he can hear you like he has something in my apartment and i know that he he can hear us and and he was just kind of like okay and also that was more reason for me to get away from him right from his standpoint and from mine but no matter what i did i just couldn't seem to do that yeah and so and, and and the thing and that was just the beauty of it too because obviously I was already having financial issues and so you know he hit, that was the way he would get in even when I would just say like I need a break I need space well let me just come and get your car and fill it up with gas because that's when he was switching out the tracking device so he would do that at least once a week um, let me just bring you the coffee which I think the coffee is what he was I think my Starbucks is what he was putting the poisoning in um, and so you know just all these little things but you come to find out he did have a camera in my bedroom and the smoke detector. Um, and even when I moved out of the apartment, so their smoke detector was beeping and it was like, if you look up the code of beeps, it will tell you like there was a malfunction. And so I still remember like the thing was beeping. It was driving me crazy. And he was like, well, let me just change the battery. And I was like, look, cause I told him I was calling um, maintenance out. He's like, let me change the battery. And I'm like, it's not the battery. And I'd get really irritated because he, I just was like, this dude's a fucking idiot. And so you know, he's like, well, just let me try. And I'm like, person number one, you're a fucking dumbass. It's not the battery. I just showed you. I Googled it. It's a malfunction with the thing, blah, blah, blah. Well, he got my little stump ladder and he got up there. And of course, he annoyed the shit out of me. I didn't sit there and watch him. I went about my day in my apartment and did whatever. Well, when maintenance came out to finally fix it, they were the guy. I mean, I just remember the look on his face. He was like, I have never seen the wiring so messed up in one of these and that was after, you know, person number one had gotten up in there and tinkered and obviously removed whatever he was doing. So for the sake of time, um, let's start kind of winding it down a little bit. Uh, but I think it's important to talk about how you got away from him. Yeah. I got away from him because all the things that he was doing, like I said, with, you know, causing me to lose my job. Um, you know, he confronted me about 
being worried about my drug problem one of the nights that I was leaving to go either hang out with and, and again my drug problem was weed and I understand that for some people that knew me at the time my face was crazy whatever and it's like they might have thought like oh but that that literally was my only drug I have never done meth I have never done hardcore drugs and like your your behavior was over the top and like I didn't know you really before or at, like, right. like but so I just assumed you were an over-the-top person. But and I am. It, but, but that it was, was heightened for me. Right. But it wasn't ever way out of the realm of insanity or like it wasn't like you were just different than me or the way that I mean, I lived my life like a, in a cocoon. But you you weren't you could just tell like something was off, but it wasn't drugs. It was right. It was literally and I just yeah. thought it was like maybe that mental place in my life because I had been so conservative for so long. Cause as, but as my daughter was getting older, but do you think he was kind of pushing you to, but he did. Yeah, he definitely, he pushed me to that. And some of it was the, you know, the drug induced state that I was in, but then some of it was just like the thing as a track, like, I tried to get away from I wanted them to go away. I would have been totally fine if he would have just left my stuff and left me there. Do you think that he was he was pushing you to self-destructive behavior? Yes, right. um, just to cause me to A, need him, but then to also keep other people away. Yeah. Um, and so um, ultimately, I was exactly where I told him I was going to be, getting, you know, um, actually getting some money from a guy for my phone that I had just bought some weed from and um, it was just you know again just some like young kid like 24 or something I met him up in front of the casino one morning and then uh, the police pulled up behind me and the cop got out my license was suspended it shouldn't have been it was an air with state farm I was like well wait a minute we can fit and he was like no if I smell marijuana get out of the car and so um, it was you know an issue with insurance not being they didn't do their part. So I, you know, that was corrected. No big deal. But, um, the guy that I was with, there was a Xanax. He claimed it was his in the police report. I still, you know, we both went to jail. Um, okay. So then I'm now this anonymous disturbance was called in, which is what the cop said. There was an anonymous disturbance reported. Well, I just thought this guy had maybe acted a fool in the casino. I had no clue. I never got out of my car. I was in front of the door at the casino the whole time. I'm like, I don't have a part in that. He's like, well, I smell the weed, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, I ended up going to jail my first time ever in trouble. So while I'm there, what I didn't know because they hadn't booked me in yet is I had enough cash to just bond myself out. Um, but I don't, you don't know people's numbers these days. Well, as I'm there, all of a sudden they're like, I look, I'm like, there's a window and I'm like, I thought I saw person. You're already, you already know what's about to come out. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I saw person number one's car. Shaughnessy's like, and I'm like, (laughs) of course, Mr. Mr. White and Knight in shining armor shows up. Imagine that. And then, and then they're like, yeah, how did he get, he was 45 minutes, he was 45 (laughs) minutes away where he lived from where he lived and he was there. It was amazing. Maybe just, well, he waited a few hours and so, uh, but still, I, I never called him. I never called him. He showed up and bonded me out of jail. And so, you know, again, I, it's like there's so many emotions. Like, you know what I mean? I've been through all this whole traumatic thing. I'm tired, but then I'm also relieved to be out of it. But then I, don't know, I was just like, I was like, how how did you come to get me? Like, I didn't even call you. Oh, um, I, he was like, uh, when you didn't come back, I knew where you were at, where you said you were going to be. And so I just, I looked it up online. But the thing is, they didn't even book me in until he bonded me out. So I wasn't online. Oh. But again, that I didn't know at the time. So I'm just like, well, that's crazy. And so it wasn't until finding the tracking device in my car as I was preparing to, you know, try to get away from him, uh, that then things start making sense. Um, and so space. 
space seems to be the thing that kind of helps you put it all together, is it not? Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Time and oh, space. Yeah, getting away from them because then it's like you have time to stop being gaslighted mm-hmm. and start mm-hmm. putting things mm-hmm. together. And so, so when your when your girlfriends or friends of any nature say, delete them out of your phone, stop, d- delete them off of Instagram, delete them off of like social media, I think. Just those steps, block him on your number, like those little things, that's hugely get a, important. Get a protective yeah. order. Yeah. Well, I was denied. Um, oh, gosh. I was denied one. Um, and so well, so what would happen, and, and, I, and yeah, we can get to that too, and I get it. But uh, so what then would happen was I found the tracking device in my car, just this, and I start putting things together. And so I didn't care. At that point, I'm just like, I'm getting away. I'm, I got to get out of this guy's house or I'm going to die. I don't even know. And so... I, you know, I knew a guy who was looking for a roommate. And I'm like, that's perfect. Like, blah, blah, blah. Well, again, this stuff's been going on on my phone. And I felt like he had something on my phone. But how do you? I'm like, oh, no, surely I'm crazy. Uh, no, he had my phone cloned. And so he knew everything that was going on on my phone. And again, he would just, he was very good, though, because he would just say things. And, and I'm like, maybe they happened three months ago. But I know that it was like a message I had sent or an email. And I'm like, how the hell would he know word for word? But he wouldn't say like, oh, I know this happened. He would just say it in a different, mm-hmm. like, use it in a different context he just to totally, kind of mess with me. Yeah. Just to mess with totally me. Totally memorized it. Just exactly. Most of it, yeah. Just, to, just, it's like that. It's a, it's a psycho. He was a, he was just a total psycho. Yeah. And so he would do those little things where he kind of got off on the fact of kind of rubbing it in my face. And then I have no clue. To have so I literally was texting with the guy my best friend since I was 18, her now 20 or then 21 year old daughter, um, overdosed on heroin and died. Mm. So, uh, happened to be that same next day was when I went over and, uh, signed a month to month lease. And I had been talking about doing that with him on my phone. And, um, and I knew, I knew he could read my phone at this point. I already kind of knew that, but I just was like, Fuck you. I don't care. Like, you know what? I hope you do see this because I'm fucking getting away from you. Um, and when I when I got arrested the first time, I got put on probation. I was still smoking weed. I was using uh, fake urine. And so he told on me for that. And so then I went to jail. And then this time I, I had to go for two weeks because I was on probation. So it's a probation hold. And so uh, but as I sat there for two weeks, my face started healing. Um, all these other things. Are, and and. I knew as as soon as it happened, it was no coincidence. I knew when I went in that he, I knew that he was the reason I was, had gotten called in for a drug test that day. I just knew it. And I could tell by the way everyone was looking at me. I could tell by the way he looked at me when I left his house. I could just tell everything. And, and yeah, and it still happened. It played out exactly as I had expected. Um, and I went to jail for two weeks. And so that whole two weeks, all my clothes are there. Um, I, I cried to the lady that ran the jail. I'm like, this guy did all this to me. I'm like, I understand I'm guilty of, of what I'm here for, but what, what's going to happen? I'm like, it's going to get rid of my stuff. I'm, I'm, you know, and so I was just freaking out. And so the whole two weeks I had to just kind of play it cool and act like I didn't I think he was behind at all. And so then it hit me that he was behind the first thing. You know what I mean? It starts really kind of coming in to context. And so. When I got out, um, I I almost killed him. <laughs> I wanted to. I packed my stuff up, and I left. Excuse me. Um, and he obviously would not take 
he wouldn't take um, accountability that he had been buying all of it. He would just try to like only the things that he knew I knew for sure about like and and then it was just he tried to downplay it. And so I was just like, look, I'm we're not I'm not doing this with you. I don't care. I'm out. Well, while I was in jail, um, he came and got my car, and I didn't want to I didn't want to sign it over to him. But what am I going to do? I was just like, well. I I have to because otherwise I'm going to, I don't have to, but is that or pay the toe and then, you know what I mean? All that stuff. And so I was just like, screw it. Well, while I was in there, he had another tracking device hardwired into my car. So once I got out, got my stuff, got, you know, everything, I made a police report. I let them know, like, this is the extent of like what he's done. Like I, you know, I understand I broke the law. I'm not trying to say that, but, but he went through all of these measures to try to control me or try to do this and that. Um, and you know, I showed him the tracking device, this and that. And so I went to prevail the next day and they were wonderful, but my protective orders were denied, um, Mm -hmm. because he had not physically abused me. He had not threatened to physically abuse me. Uh, How is that possible? That is the law in the state of Indiana. You cannot get one unless um, – they work a little bit differently than that. But for the most part, that's exactly it. And um, So you can, o- you can only get a protective order if there's a threat of physical violence or physical violence. Yeah, there's there's three areas, um, uh, you know, that covers uh, – um, you have to write an incident where um, – you were placed in fear of physical harm. Um, he threatened physical harm. He did cause physical harm. Um, stuff like that. So it's all physical, like Shaughnessy said. Yeah. And then there's the second component that you can get uh, protective order all in the sexual violence, uh, rape victims and things like that. And then, then there's the third one, which is stalking. But stalking's really hard to prove in Indiana, and it's really hard to get a protective order on. I've only been successful with one. That was what, you know, and that's what the cop told me when he took Mm -hmm. the police report. He told me, like, you know, I don't doubt what you're saying. Poisoning mm-hmm. your... Peel- but you can't but prove it at that point, because right. now it's been, this time has passed, right. and and I can't prove that he did it. I right. mean... I again, I didn't even know what was going on at the time, so, so I can't go back and say, "Well, now I know it was him." You know. So, is there just a huge set of holes in the laws that are written by the state legislature or or cities in their statutes? There are tons of gaps in the law when it comes to um, protecting victims, and we every year as part of what we do is we we lobby and we try to help laws to. Um, help write laws to bridge those gaps and then we you know some of the things we come up with that's you know my agency does this year we got a comprehensive victim rights package through senate bill 551 Uh, it's looking good Um, check it out senate bill 551 lots of good stuff in there um including actually protective orders for victims of grooming Mm. so we had it and i don't want to take away from what you're saying because i really want to hear more about that but he there was a situation where a child was being groomed by her friend's dad and it was like really creepy stuff like seeing her tons of text messages like a thousand text messages in a Jeez. relatively short period of time sent her um, roses on Valentine's Day she was getting ready to go on vacation with this um, other kid and her family with the the perpetrator and mm. so the, had the parents not realized what was going on then they were about to send her out of state with this family because he was so and so's dad good guy and so you know they came to us and wanted to criminalize grooming behavior and we were like you, you can't there's no way of doing that. We can't do that. Um, 
But what they did is they amended the protective order statute now. So if a person comes in and says they feel like their child is being um, groomed, that they can get it now. So why why can't you why can't you pass laws against that? Like what when you say you can't criminalize that behavior? Well, if you think about it, how how would we write it that would make where it would still be constitutional Mm -hmm. and um, not a case where you basically you can't criminalize being a creep. Exactly. Every listener to the Libertarian podcast just sighed a <laughs> breath of relief, right, Miranda? Right. Exactly. Um, well, because that's a matter of perception. So why sure. you? Because you know it is. It's hard to to draw a line. Can I not be nice to a kid? You yeah. Know. It's right. hard to draw that line because what's weird to you and what weird you know to her to me, it's all going to be different. Yeah, it makes total sense. So if if there's tons of gaps in the the laws and police are like, because that's what happened with Amanda. If you listen to Amanda's story, there's a lot of people who are like. This is terrible. I feel bad for you. I wish there was anything I could do. Maybe you can go talk to these people. And they'd go talk, she'd go talk to that person. This is terrible. I wish there were anything I could do for you. Maybe go talk to the prosecutor. And then it's, it's just this never ending cycle from the state of, from the state, the city, any government institution. So if you're looking, if you're in this kind of situation where you clearly know, like, what other resources might there be? I mean, and, and realizing this is a national show, so try to be a little broad with it, but... Well, in that exact scenario that I just described, go to your legislator. Sometimes mm-hmm. it does work. The, that In that situation, they actually reached out to us. Mm. We contacted the... Um, prosecutor in that jurisdiction who contacted the senator and then we all got together and we're like what are we going to do about it and we did something and the mom of that child came and um testified testified during committee this year um revenge porn Uh, have Mm. you guys heard of what revenge porn is Mm -hmm. um we've been trying for years Mm -hmm. to get something in revenge porn passed and there's one particular victim of it whose um ex-husband kept disseminating uh intimate images of her without her consent after they got divorced and he keeps doing it Mm. like he does it over and over and we can't do anything about it there is no law on the books and she went to the mayor of her town and they are there every year and we've been there every year trying to get it passed and we actually think we might get it done this year so yeah. no promises because you never know until it's written until and it's this signed. is why i love i love the prosecuting attorneys council and, and um ipac and and just just such great prosecutors that act as a resource um for not just um you know, us advocates and prosecutors, but also for victims. I mean, they, they are such great advocates in that sense. Um, and, and I agree. And, and actually ICCVR, I mean, one thing that we're going to be doing is, um, really, uh, coaching victims and survivors on how to talk to their legislators and how to be lobbyists. And I've done some lobbying and I can tell you, I actually, I don't do the direct lobbying. I believe that it's much more impactful for survivors to do it. And it's really healing for them too. And I can tell you that some of the best laws in our country that have been that that have been passed to protect the public are were lobbied um by crime victims <laughs> um, the, the reality so. is that it's uh it's an overwhelming task and you've got 150 legislators that you have to convince and a governor and it is an overwhelming task of endless mm-hmm. meetings it's hard for people to take off work to go have those conversations but if if uh, you know we're we're not getting the government that I would like to design at this point. This is the government we have, and there's children that are being hurt now. There's women that are being hurt now. There's men being hurt now, and you you have to rise to the occasion. If you're interested in helping with some of this stuff, you have to you have to be uh, an, an advocate. Write the people that are, are are that represent you to support 
Senate Bill 551, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. And you have to go, like, step up. I mean, that really is... Take action. People have to have personal conversations with legislators. And one thing that I try to do with the show is humanize the people that are involved in government. Like, obviously, Shaughnessy has come here today to talk to people that, like, in the abstract, like, oh, prosecutors or, oh, the... But in reality, you're somebody who deeply cares about the people that you work with and getting justice for victims. Absolutely. I mean, it's hard. And, you know, it's easy for other people to armchair quarterback the things that we do. And we get a lot of crap in the media and things like attacking plea agreements and things like that. But I just encourage people to think about everything we've talked about tonight and all of the factors that we have to consider when we're going into court. Because... I'm trying my damnedest not to put my victim through any more than they've already been through because right. I've had multiple victims tell me that going through the system was harder than what they had been through already. Yep. And unless you have had to hold a victim of a rape or a molest or domestic violence after a jury has found their offender not guilty, mm-hmm. you don't get it. And so I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that they don't go through that. Can, mm-hmm. can you talk about being a victim on the stand? We mentioned oh it God. off air, but I think it should be on air. So, um, um, Leo was talking earlier about um, victims' rights, and, and I'm talking specifically about Indiana. It is um, constitutionally written. I think it's Article 1, Section 13. Don't quote me on that. I, um, don't worry. But, and then it's statutorily prescribed. We're not going to argue with you. We're not lawyers. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it, part it's treating victims are supposed to be treated with fairness and dignity. And um, there's this whole list of things that they're supposed to um, – be be given these rights and these um, respects and there is one major caveat and that is unless it infringes upon the rights of the accused and anybody who has ever seen a victim sit through a cross-examination on a scene in a court of law would say excuse me where's the fairness and dignity and then you know the defense says well this is zealous advocacy on the behalf of my client and I'm going to do what I have to do right and some of the things and you know sitting there at the um prosecutor's table there's only so much i can do because they they do have that right they have the right to cross-examination that is a constitutional right right but it's really hard to watch it when you know what your victim's already been through and if you've got a um a skilled defense attorney they know the um the the preconceived notions that we talked about earlier on behalf of the jurors and they and know they're exactly very good at what they, they know do how to get that they, yeah they know how to question the victim in a way that um plays on those notions that your jury's already thinking of right. and so they're really really difficult cases they are and you know i and that's one thing that we can do as advocates is really um educate our clients and survivors on the realities of the criminal justice system and not sugarcoat anything i mean i'm i'm completely honest with them about um the probability of a conviction especially in sexual violence cases i mean statistically out of every thousand rapists only five are going to see prison time i mean it's like three percent you know and 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 a lot of it's what shaughnessy was talking about and and so it's like i have to prepare them for that and 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 testimony and things like that but also i first i'll tell you i hate the word plea deal I hate the word. I think it should be called plea negotiations. It's really not what the victims and yeah, survivors think. <laughs> or no, no, not. But 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 it just sounds kind of bad. It just it really is. Is that like Shaughnessy was saying? Is that you know you want to really avoid a trial and and sometimes plea deals can be a good thing. And if we can somehow explain to. Um, 
victims and survivors what that entails and what aggravating circumstances are that um, the prosecutor is going to argue and what mitigating circumstances are that the defense is going to argue and the fact that I tell victims all the time do not ever underestimate the power of a defense attorney because they are really good and they are good at what they do and I've seen them perform in court and it's mm-hmm. it's it's a uh, you know honestly I'm sure you can talk about it. I mean it, it's it's a game it's kind of like you guys are dancing in front of the jury and so um, for a victim and survivor I mean they, this happened to them there's no oh we need a jury like this this happened and so you know but they, so they don't understand the um, what do you call the um, the process be, beyond proving beyond a reasonable doubt yeah. <laughs> you know? strict and heavy burden the heavy burden, the the fact that you have to convince jury jurors what they have to have like be ninety nine percent sure that that person's guilty. I wouldn't. I would never describe it like that. But um, just reasonable doubt is a, It's kind of a tough concept too. Right. Like mm-hmm. for the average person, for lawyers to understand. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, you you know, having those conversations with your victim is never easy because the the way I would talk to my victims is, you are my number one concern, period. Right. But you have to understand my number two concern is the next person. And so I've mm-hmm. got to do everything I can to make sure this isn't going to happen again to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And so if we're going to plead this a different way, then I would like to plead it. But I know that this person will sign that and it's going to put them on the sex offender registry. And so I can try to say the next person, I want to do that. Um in, I never, I never, ever, ever set high expectations for these cases right. because you simply can't. I have seen cases that I was like, oh, this is a slam dunk and we lost. Them. I've mm. seen other cases where I'm like, because if you're doing this job right, you lose sometimes, period. Because okay. yeah. there are some times where it's not a strong case, but I, I think I might be able to prove it. And I know in my heart, I believe my victim and I know that that person did that. I'm going. Yeah, all day long I'm gonna go and I'm to gonna, trial when you say you're yeah. going to trial, mm-hmm. you got to do it, and sometimes you're gonna lose. That's just the way it is because um, you got to do right by that person and by your community because that's the whole point. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna start wrapping up because you two have been more than gen- you three have been more than generous with your time, and I know it's getting late. Um, but I, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask um, about like not the Kavanaugh situation specifically, but when we were going through that as a country and people are questioning Blazy Ford's credibility, I think she's a bad example because I have, I have issues with some of kind of a lot of that, but uh, I found her to be a credible person when she was testifying, but I also found him to be credible. So it was, it's a tough thing. So I don't want to get into the weeds of Kavanaugh specifically, but in that kind of time period, there were a lot of moments where victims were stepping up or R. Kelly's victims are stepping up or, you know, we're having people step up in public and saying, I, Bill Cosby sexually assaulted me or this person sexually assaulted me. Ha- working with people on a daily basis like you do, when you see some of these things, are you able to discern who is telling the truth and who is not? Or how do you personally kind of work through like a Kavanaugh accusation, um, you know, false accusations? I I mean, I've had them in my life. I mean, I'm not it's and I'm sque- it happens, it, unfortunately, it, it just if you if you have an interpersonal relationship that fails a very easy way to kind of i mean so i'm sensitive to that side too but the reality is that 
sexual assault happens and people who are in prominent positions may have done things 20 years ago. So how do you discern or separate – if you're going to give some advice to the listener on how they ought to look at these cases in public, how, how would you do that? Well, I think the the Kavanaugh example is really difficult because you have the added um – factor of politics in it you have the, the force of government and so it's that very one. hard on that one yeah. because i think that some people on both sides a lot of people went into that and they've already got a foregone conclusion right and then they fit the narrative to whatever it is that they've already concluded mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. opinion um generally speaking in my career we, we talked a little bit about false accusations the rate of that is actually really low yeah and um they don't get to me usually right. um, because they've already been through um, a screening process. You know, the detective's already been there. Um, another prosecutor has decided whether or not there's probable cause to file the uh, case. So by the time it gets to the pro- at least specifically a false accusation of rape, right? right? That's what I'm talking about. I'm okay. Right. And um, in the entire time I did these cases, there was only one where I was like, I don't. I don't think that that happened the way that they said that's happened. Mm. And I dismissed it because ethically that's my duty to do so. My duty is not to get a conviction. My duty is to make sure that um, the right things are happening. Justice is permitted. Exactly. So um, for me, when I look at some of these things in the news and stuff like that, um, first of all, when you have multiple people who are saying the same exact thing happened to them, (laughs) they don't know each other. I mean, the proof's kind of in the pudding there, oh, yeah. in yeah. my opinion. That's Roy been my, Moore. That's been my standard. I think, yeah, multiple accusers were like the George Takei one, where it was like one guy, and he was kind of okay with it, and it was like, oh, it was fun, and nobody else comes forward, and you're like, this seems like bull crap. But then you have Roy Moore, where there's the same pattern in a lot of these stories. It's like, Some yeah. of the girls may be lying. It may have, out of sure. ten people, maybe one or two of them are embellishing or just whatever. But yeah, if, if you have multiple people coming up and saying something there's something there. Right. Yeah, and you know, Shaughnessy had mentioned being how how those of uh, we're, we're what's called trauma informed and I definitely encourage your listeners to google that term um and to also look at the term uh, there's a whole science be- behind victimization um looking up the term uh the neurobiology of trauma. Um it, you know, so I'm I'm really biased, you know. I've mm. gotten a lot of training in this field and training on the neurobiology of trauma um and the science behind it. And so when, when, you know, I hear people say, oh, she had gaps in her story. I mean, I know that that happens. I mean, that's, that's, that's what happens when you're, when you're victimized and traumatized. And so to me, in in my opinion, um, well, first of all, I, you know, I have to, I mean, I, I believe, I mean, I believe I'm a, I'm an advocate and Mm -hmm. I I would not be a good advocate if I didn't believe Blasey Ford. But, um, also, I mean, just from her testimony, I mean, just based on, my particular training and understanding of the neurobiology of trauma, um, I, I believe her. And, mm-hmm. and that's important. And I encourage everybody to look at the science behind that. But Shaughnessy and Lael, she didn't say anything 30 years ago. That, how do you answer that? That is, that is how this works. That is, it is not often that someone comes forward immediately. Um, in a stranger type of situation, way more common. If I've, I had a, a, a stranger rapist, as we called him, a, mul- a serial rapist who raped women, um, he abducted them off the side of the street in Indianapolis. And the only reason we got him was because he had had a prior felony, and so he was in CODIS. Mm. And so, and he, 
again, thankfully for our sake, he did not use a condom when he raped these women. And so we were able to get him that way. They immediately reported. But just like we talked about earlier, that's not what most sexual assaults are. Most sexual assaults are perpetrated by someone you know, and people are so much less likely to go forward immediately. And the fact that Miranda, for instance, told family after the second it happened, she kind of pried it from me. She could tell something was wrong. And she was again that I would have if it weren't for her doing that and questioning me and like right and it all happening right then when I got home from it happening I I don't know that I ever would have come forward because I felt you know what I mean like I was somewhere I shouldn't have been basically I didn't you know what I mean even though I told him no and I didn't want to do it I still did it I didn't bite him or jump out of a moving you know what I mean so I had a lot of conflicting um, emotions with what had actually taken place and and was I wrong and some so I wouldn't have have come forward and and with Blasey Ford I mean that she that was so long ago but you you gotta understand like there's something called triggers and sometimes survivors I mean that that, those memories lay dormant and they move on and they lead successful lives and then all of a sudden a trigger happens and they remember and they get pissed off I mean and so for for him to be you know I mean being nominated for for the supreme court for as a supreme court judge i mean it's just that was probably a major trigger for her and then it being out on the media i can tell you i mean i I guarantee there is an increase in delayed rape reports around the country from survivors also being triggered by those moments um so but it's not uncommon at all for survivors to wait a long time it just depends on where they're at in their life their triggers how they're feeling at the moment and and also to add on this this very important is we, we got to understand that, especially Blazy Ford, 30 years ago. I mean, if you think victim blaming is bad now, and I mean, imagine proof. how it was 30 years ago. So, you know, uh, it's already hard today in 2019 for survivors to report and come forward because of victim blaming. Um, so it just it doesn't surprise me that she didn't report it back then. Well, but. I I want to thank Miranda for coming and telling her story in such a public way, because it is the thing that gives other women and men to have the courage to tell their story. And, you know, guys, men specifically, uh, I have through this process of, of doing the show learned that men, uh, I mean, you kind of can help me with the statistics, but men are molested or raped at the same rate as women. It is not a, a female only problem. Um, but uh, One out of 59 men, according to my stats. But. And We've got 10,000 people listening. And so if you are one of those guys, it is not easy to come forward and talk about that because, well, people will think I'm gay. We talked about that off air. Or there's there's a myriad of complications around that. And there's no shame in coming forward and talking about things that are not your fault. So if you're a man or a woman and you're listening to the show, please uh, go to the trusted ones in your life, the loved ones in your life. If you're a victim of anything that we've talked about tonight, uh, go to your support system that, that you know. I've I've never in my life, and maybe you two can back me up on this, working in this professionally, I have never had someone come to me or watched other people go to their friends and family and say, I'm a victim of sexual assault or domestic violence, and have anybody have anything other than overwhelming love and empathy for that person when they say that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's the um, self mm-hmm. guilt or the self, yeah. you know, shame. judgment. Shame. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, you, you vigorously shook your head, but it's radio, so please voice <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Guilt, shame, shame, you mentioned uh, about male victims. They deal with all of the same things that we've talked about with female victims, but, it, but other things too. Sexuality, am I gay? Will people think I'm gay? Masculinity, um, those kinds of things, and it further complicates it, and I think that's what leads to there being less and less reporting, but... Um, We've got some really great um, survivors here in our community who come out and speak about that. Male survivors of sexual abuse, both as children and as adults. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, the, p- people, I, your people will be there for you. Yeah. Yep. They absolutely will be. Um, so please uh, don't keep that one percent locked away and allow yourself to be ruled by that. Do you and want the hotline again? Please, because um, sometimes calling a hotline and. Let me tell you, the power of voicing something for the first time, and even if it's to a stranger, getting the words out is the hard part. And then mm-hmm. once you've done that, then you can go to somebody else. So yeah, please. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're a victim of domestic violence, um, please call the hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Um, victim and survivor of sexual violence, you can call one 800 Six five six four six seven three. Definitely call. Everything's confidential. You know, um, it, it's a safe place to talk. So, all right. So, final thoughts, um, Miranda. You're a longtime veteran. Why don't you show them how final thoughts goes? Which is your self, your chance to self promote or clean up anything that you might have wanted to say, oh. or summarize, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I would just say we've all. As humans, we all have been victimized at some point. Sometimes we have been maybe even the abuser in a situation. Um, and really, if you feel like you're in that position, if you feel like something's not right, don't ignore your intuition. Um, and regardless of how hard you think the road ahead is or you know if anything can happen, start taking those steps, make those calls, um, you know, I honestly really was at the lowest I could get and, and thank God, you know, we wanted to bash the government and whatever, but, um, not just us, but in general people, um, if it weren't for the fact that he had involved the police, um, it wouldn't have opened my eyes, but then also that gave me a sense of security, um, now that, you know, the government was involved, the police were involved, the judicial system was involved. So when I left, I was able to get away from him. Um, my protective orders were denied. But the fact that I was then getting right, I was facing court still over the issue. I ended up being on house arrest. But knowing that the government was there and I was just even because I was in trouble, I, I just felt like I had that backing. Right. Um, and so just I say you know, involve people and start making those steps. Um, because no matter how bad situation is, things will not get better until you do. Yep. Shaughnessy. Well, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you, Miranda, for telling your story because it takes an incredible amount of courage to, um, come forward and talk about it. Um, especially, on in a public forum but it it sounds silly but just like we said earlier if you see something say something um and it doesn't have to come from you there can be anonymous reports and um it's not going to hurt anything to uh to say something at all and um we are here for you i know sometimes it seems like to some people that the criminal justice system is very messed up and it certainly isn't perfect but we do believe our victims we want you to come forward and we want you to we want to help you okay lail 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And, and, and Miranda, thank you so much. And like Shaughnessy said, I mean, it's incredibly courageous to share your story. And, you know, um, survivors are out there listening. And, and I guarantee that you gave them hope tonight, which is thank incredibly you. important. So um, that's important. That, that's what I want all of them to know is that there is hope. I know today's hard. Um, take it day by day. Uh, definitely contact 211 if you need resources. Um, and then, yeah, and I just, I'm thankful for my team. I know I, look, uh, prosecuting attorneys council is a state agency that is doing it right. I mean, you can hear everything that Shaughnessy said about, you know, how they're legislating with, with Senate bill 531 and, and they educate advocates like me so I can talk to them about actually what a plea deal is because <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. I'm an advocate, but it's, I need them. Um, so see, in the, and see if your state has something similar. And if not, I'm sure they'll help they you. Should, there right? is a prosecuting yeah. coordinating council of some sort in, in every, every single state. state. Ours okay. is pretty darn active and we've really branched out and do a lot more. Mm-hmm. And thank you for your kind words, Layla. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, some I love states you guys it's only, <laughs> it's only two or three people in some states, but mm-hmm. it's at least a starting point. And usually do have those um, relationships with legislators who can help actually affect change. Yeah. And the, yeah, thank you. And I appreciate that. And then, and maybe we can always, you know, do a second, um, a part two on, on actual prevention. Um, you know, that's one thing I wanted to end off is, is that we can, you know, we talked a little bit about, um, Bandora and social learning theory, but we can model healthy behaviors to our children. And I, I certainly do and make sure that, you know, my husband buys me flowers in front of them. And, you know, I, we don't be easy, you know, it, it's important. I mean, they're, they're looking to us as models. And so, um, really thinking about, that prevention side and how we can sort of be a big brother, big sister to people in the community, like you were saying, and, and, uh, you know, making sure that we, we understand that, um, it takes a, I think a village to raise a, a child long-term change. Mm-hmm. I think that's such an important point. I have people in my family that I think were abused and have never told anybody and have never dealt with that. And they passed on those thinking patterns to their children <laughs> And it's up to that generation then to break that cycle. Mm-hmm. I've, I've seen in my own family people not deal with a child molestation mm-hmm. situation. I've, I've seen that that is a perpetual generational cycle until you make the choice to mm-hmm. change. And so even if you are a victim, the choice of not moving forward can have a generational impact. And so I just think it's, and if you're the abuser, if you're listening to this going, I think I need to examine my own behavior, start moving towards changing your behavior, except that, except that this is ugly stuff, but you're redeemable. Yeah. You may not do it um, with a malicious intent, but when you realize that you're doing it, it's time to we've stop. Bo- we've both been in that position where we've been on the other side of the coin where we've been ugly. Oh, for sure. And and sometimes you don't realize that, you know, And but that's just it. It's starting to realize the characteristics of it and noticing like, you know what? I may not have meant to be that way, but this is what I've done. So I need to maybe check myself. Yeah. yeah. So I just think that's a really important point, that generational. Mm-hmm. Modeling e- behavior. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's prevention is important to talk about, too. And there's a whole another three hours we can always talk uh, about. Exactly. The prevention that's piece, what everybody so. can think all of a time right. they were victimized. Let's pause in round two. No, just all right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, uh, all right. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to thank um, I want to thank our patrons for making this possible. There's not many shows that are doing this kind of stuff. And I think it's really important. 
and our patrons really support that, especially Christy Avery, Craig DaCosta, Jason Doolittle. I love you, Christy. Memerty Libs and the Libertarian Coalition. Uh, they really uh, go the extra mile in supporting us. I want to thank the listeners. You know, when we do these kind of shows, they're, uh, they're always... Uh, they're not our typical type of show and I always end these shows and I go that was man that was depressing and that was heavy and then I get the emails from you guys saying man that really made me think about my own behavior and that as much as anything else keeps this show going and we do more of this kind of stuff that has this type of impact because of your letters letting us know how this kind of stuff letting you know the 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 time that the three of them took to do this to come in and talk to you i'll share that with them if you want i'll, I'll put you in contact with them um but you know if if you know somebody like share the episode too i mean say listen this is heavy but i know that uh, maybe you heard something and it's worth sharing so uh thank you miranda for coming on coming thank back you for having me missed you thank you for sharing yeah. your story uh, thank you, Shaughnessy and Lael, for taking the time thank to come and do this. Thank you for having me. Yes. You guys were awesome. Thank you for hosting. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and thank you for being, a, you know, an advocate for for men or you know, voice for men and things like that. Thank and, you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, men have it rough right now, and I know that sounds countercultural to what we're supposed to. Not you and your your male privilege, right? Yeah. But I think, <laughs> I think but that's the shift. The conversation. I think part of the reason that there's a brokenness in men is that we're not having those conversations, and so mm-hmm. that's why I think some of this is important and being sensitive to to men too. So, thank you everybody for listening, and uh, thank you for supporting the program. And and please uh, don't be afraid to email us at editor at we are libertarians dot com. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next week.